Good morning, America. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer, and it's Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. It is lunchtime in London, 5 a.m. in Los Angeles, and 8 a.m. here in New York, live from the CNN Financial News headquarters. It is beautiful outside, perfect September day with lots of sunshine. Oh, would you look at Washington, huh? I'm going outside today. Other than that, it's kind of quiet around the country. We like quiet. It's quiet. It's too quiet. Breaking news story to tell you about. Apparently, a plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center here in New York City. It happened just a few moments ago, apparently. We have very little information available at this point in time. Obviously, horrified commuters were, were absolutely devastated when they heard this explosion. We talked with somebody a moment ago, another eyewitness, Elliot Walker. Elliot, can you hear me? Yes, hi, Katie. Hi, Elliot. Tell me where you are and what you saw. Well, I live in this area. I've returned to my apartment, but... I was walking down the sidewalk delivering my young daughter to school and uh, we heard a very loud um, sound, the kind of sound you hear when a plane is going fast past you, followed by an enormous crash um, and an immediate explosion. Um, I don't think we could feel shockwaves, but we, we sort of felt like we did. And we were in a position where we could see um, the Trade Center almost immediately between the other buildings. Um, and an enormous fireball that must have been 300 feet across was visible immediately. Elliot, have you, of course, because of the incident that occurred in the early 1990s, have you seen any any evidence, Elliot, of, of people being taken out of the building? Uh, you say that emergency vehicles are there, understandably so, but of course the major concern is human oh loss. I mean, do you know if there were many people in the building? Oh, another one just hit. Something else just hit. A very large plane oh, just flew directly over my building, and there's been another collision. Can you see it? I yes. can see it on the shot. Oh, my. Something else has you just... We just saw like a plane circling the building. It is in the other building. We just saw a plane circling the building. That's a heart. That's flames, man. See, that, that that's really the second building, so... Oh, my God. No, 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 no. No, no, no. no. The one on the second right. building's on fire. That's yeah. right. The, the one on the right has a hole in it. There's a hole in it. The other one's the one that exploded. No, I think it was the back, reflection. Was the back side sure. of, the, of the first building. That's a reflection. At least I hope it was. I do, too. That's a rumor. Somebody just called and said that on CNN, a second plane just crashed into... Oh, my a second oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. So it's a terrorist attack, no, no, isn't it? Just, that, that's no, what they're saying. It's got to be. A second plane might have crashed and a second building is on fire. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way.
this point quite certain he pledges the government's full support, as right. would be obvious, mm -hmm. for the victims and their families, as well as a full-scale investigation to hunt down uh, those responsible. Let's go back to Cindy Hsu in the newsroom, who's joining us now with another update. Uh, Cindy. Uh, wait a second. This is, a, is this a live picture? This is a live picture. We are seeing the second World Trade Tower Center. World Trade Center Tower number one has just collapsed, ladies and gentlemen. You see it live in our picture. One World Trade Center has just collapsed. That means both World Trade Center buildings have collapsed. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Incredible. Okay, I had to go find people who need help. anybody right now but apparently there it, it felt just a few moments ago like there was an explosion of some kind here at the Pentagon I want to tell you that we are getting word from New York right now that another building has collapsed I understand that this is a 47 story building uh, if I don't do we have pictures of it I guess that's smoke now correct me if I'm wrong uh, in the control room please but is that smoke coming from this third collapse? Okay, that, that is what we're understanding, which makes sense because it looks like the sun is, is going down so that perhaps it wasn't as full as it might be normally around uh, 5.30 on a Tuesday. That uh, information, of course, take a look at that right-hand side of the screen. It's going okay. down right now. There it is. Yep. Right down right there. Newly released photos of the September 11th attacks are shedding new light on one of the darkest days in U.S. history. Some say they proved that the assault on the U.S. homeland was indeed homegrown. September of 2005, 2005 um, I met with one of the members of the 9-11 Commission in Philadelphia. I had a, a lunch with him. Did you ask him at, at that lunch meeting in Philadelphia whether or not anybody on the 9-11 Commission had an agenda or was covering up for somebody or was protecting somebody? The, the essence I, I received, and I asked that question directly about what the nature was of why they did, you know, what was the focus of the commission. And during that conversation, this commissioner said flat out that everybody on the commission was covering for someone. Now, let, let me let me hear that again. Everybody on the commission, you mean the commissioners themselves, was covering for someone. That was the way I interpret that statement. Now, I'm getting a little tired of college professors who hate their country and who bring this hatred um, in onto a campus full of impressionable students. Am I wrong to be offended and angry about that, sir? Well, you are, you are wrong, Bill, because you haven't studied the case. We've 
created an organization consisting of experts and scholars, pilots, aeronautical engineers, mechanical engineers, structural engineers, civil engineers, physicists. We've been examining what the government's been telling us, and frankly, Bill, it's a fantasy. None of the major claims made by the government can be sustained. We've been looking at this from every point of view. The government right, has well. a story it wants to sell us. We're not buying it. Okay, you don't have to buy anything. You're American. You want to be a nut, you can be a nut. And you are a nut. Because in order for any conspiracy of this magnitude to take place, thousands of Americans would have to buy into it, would have to know about it, and would have to keep their mouth shut about it. That's never going to happen. You're like the guys who think that the space aliens kidnapped Elvis or something like that. That's, the, that's where you are. Here's Basil and Gons. Hey everybody and welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 90. 990. 90. And we're talking about something we've never talked about on this show. Well, actually yeah. we have, but no. Well, we've talked about it. We've never done a full episode about 9-11. Yeah. And, you know, I guess it's kind of weird because it's kind of like, I don't know, the epitome of conspiracy theories in, in uh, America for the past 15 years but uh you know there's just so much conjecture so many theories so much information out there i don't know we just didn't really feel compelled to do it yeah i think we actually had that conversation too at some point yeah we did that, uh you know it's so saturated with information that we would just be another uh you know a, a voice in the wind so to we speak. just wouldn't be able to say anything that you know what hadn't been said a thousand times before right but we um, got in t contact with a lady who has a little bit different perspective. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about she has some big brand new theory, but as you'll hear, she focused more not on, you know, if it was a hologram hitting the tower or if the tower was demolished or if, it, you know, it was a remote control plane. Not so much that, but what exactly happened on the planes themselves and the inconsistencies there. Where did the passengers go if indeed 9-11 happened differently than the official story? Right. And I'm pretty convinced that it did happen differently. And I think uh, our guest brings to light uh, pretty strong evidence that uh, something is amiss. And, uh, you know, I mean, you be the judge. You don't believe us. Don't believe her. You know, but be, you know, be good. It's brains. very interesting. And she does a good job of... Um, kind of throwing out her sources so you can go take a look at them. Right. Most of which are available to normal human beings. Okay, so that's that. There you go. Get ready. Hold on to your butts. Well, before we get in, though, okay. I'm sure everybody <laughs> oh, is yeah. wondering, uh, you know, where you were, what you were doing, that whole thing. I mean, that's the only uh, unique perspective that we can provide yeah. about you know, I had a I had an interesting morning that morning. I was in bed on September 10th. No, on September 10th, the <laughs> okay. night before, I was in bed, and I could not fall asleep. I was just super restless. I kind of had, like, I, I don't know. I just had this intense anxiety for some reason. And I went into my parents' room, and I told my mom. Wait, wait hold on. Before we get, how old were you? Uh, two thousand one. Well, let's 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 give a I was an young. average. Yeah, I yeah. was in. I was not. I was not in high school yet. Okay. Yeah. So, 
um, yeah, I was a young, young boy and I go into my mom's room and I really didn't know how to explain it. I just told her, you know, I just had a really bad feeling. I was really scared. She's like, okay, well, you don't have to go to school tomorrow. So I woke up the next day stoked that I didn't have to go to school. <laughs> like this was the best get out of school excuse ever. And then, yeah. And then I just get, I get up and I go over and I could hear the TV on in my parents' room. And, uh, I just kind of go in there and they're watching it on the TV there. And I just kind of sit in bed with me and my parents and watch the, the news all day long. Um, so it was a really interesting experience. Yeah. And I got out of school. So that was cool. <laughs> well, yeah, that's interesting. My experience was totally different. I was a little bit older than you. You were, you, you were what, uh, uh, infringing in the teenage years or something, right? Right about that time. You know, I can't remember exactly, but I, I was in, <laughs> do some math. I think I know. math well, I can help you wanna, in this situation. It's not worth it. I was just a young, I was in middle school. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I was, um, where was I? I was actually, it was in between, uh, it was the end of my senior year of high school. I was going into college. So that day I was supposed to get up and go turn in some paperwork at the uh, UC California local place where I was going to college. Going to college. Going to college. College boy. Yeah. And so I woke up and and in those days, I I was a a very heavy audiophile. I still am, but I was more intense at the time. I mean, I Mm -hmm. did things that my wife would never let me do now, which is basically I had... Uh, stereo speakers on every pillar of my bed post type thing. So, so yeah, I was one of those guys. So I had like two over my, you know, like one on each side of my head and then two from the, from my feet, you know, on the bottom. And I would go to sleep listening to the radio and, uh, I would wake up obviously to the radio. So I get up, I'm kind of drowsy or whatever. And, I hear Howard Stern and he's going off about something. And I'm like, Whoa, this, this sounds way more serious than, uh, than than normal, normal normal, like, you know, nonsense that I wake up to. This was your pre Jesus days. This is definitely my pre Jesus days. (laughs) (laughs) Speakers on my bedpost, Howard Stern. Yeah. 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 Let's, let's just say definitely pre Jesus days. Um, and so I get up and I go downstairs and, you know, my, my mother's cooking breakfast or something. And I, you know, we're watching the TV We're and the whole time I'm thinking this is like a movie. Like this yeah. doesn't feel real. Like what is going on? Yeah. And, and the strangest thing though, was I, I mean, obviously this was like a huge event. Obviously everyone's talking about it, but when I went, you know, I got in my car, I drove down to the university to turn in my stuff and, you know, just business as usual. Day. Yeah. Like business as usual stuff's normal. I went to the university. Everything's kind of normal. It just hadn't really like sunk in yet or something that what was going on. Either that or I mean, just I think most people, uh, if if they weren't in some sort of institutional situation, you know, uh, either in school, because I think most people that were in classrooms and stuff, they just that's all they did. They watched the news all day. Um, but you know, these were people that were working at, you know, admin desks and stuff like that. I mean, maybe they were listening to it on the radio, but they still had to do their jobs, you know? Right. So, I mean, it was just a typical normal thing. I, you know, went and turned in my stuff and, and came back home and yeah, I was glued to the TV, but I think I was, 
I literally was getting ready to move out and go to college. So I was more concerned about like, Oh, I got to pack and you know, do that kind of thing. It was literally a week or so before I left. So yeah, I mean, you know, no compelling sleepless night, prophetic, <laughs> uh, you know, thing like you Basil, but, um, right. but waking up to Howard Stern is definitely, uh, that is a, Totally different, <laughs> totally different experience than I had. <laughs> um, but you know what's interesting for, from my perspective is that I think because I, I studied sociology in college and I had a, a one professor who was a World War, or not a World War II, a uh, Vietnam War veteran. Yeah. And he was very passionate about just conspiracies. Like he was all right. about it. He would just. As- Vietnam vets should be. Yeah. And we would just watch films of just stuff. And I mean, and he, and that was the class where I first thought, you know, and he talked about nine 11 a lot in that class. And it was weird because getting into college, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, that happened, but you know, yes, it's patriotic, this and that, but I'm going into college. I am not concerned about the world right now. I'm more concerned about my world, you know? Right. So that, that was weird. And then, you know, just slowly over the years, obviously seeing the different movies and stuff that, that talks about it, but it wasn't really, I I don't think it was until I think 2007 where I really started like thinking like, uh, and it was all those movies that were coming out too, you know, loose change and uh, even zeitgeist kind of touched on it, even though, you know, parts of it were not so cool or whatever but what was frustrating to me was just everyone around me saying like oh it's you know believing the official story like how why can't you believe that it was just you know these terrorists and well it was crazy too how how fahrenheit 9-11 came out yeah yeah so it was like a huge national theatrical release yeah 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 i remember that i don't even remember exactly when that movie came out must have been a year or two afterwards yeah um but I mean, even that, like you don't get that kind of stuff anymore. Yeah. Something you happens. You don't get a huge theatrical release with a giant distribution deal right, all right. about, you know, uncovering the conspiracy. Now, obviously Michael Moore, you know, there's some questionable things about that movie and him in general, but I mean, what the heck, man, that was crazy. Yeah. And, and I, I really think. And this is something that I, I, I've thought about. I don't know how I, I could probably explore it more, but you know, the, I guess the Luciferian, whoever you want to call it, who's behind it, they must have known that there is going to be this truth movement. You know what I mean? Like they, they had to have known that there's going to be sort of yeah. opposing group to rise and, you know, question everything. And that's well, what I thing. think. Well, I think it's, it's a, it's, I question that because it was really the first thing on this scale that had been done in the information age. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, leaders for centuries and centuries and forever have been pulling this kind of stuff. I mean, Hitler bombed his own building and this, um, uh, anyways, can't think of any other examples, but it happens. (laughs) Yeah. There's there's a lot of conspiracies. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but I think this was really the first big scale uh, false flag operation in the information age. And, I, you know, maybe they had no way of anticipating the amount of information that would be available to just an average person. That's true. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that we're in a whole new part of human history where everybody's really, really empowered to um, 
be able to find the truth. And, you know, that it's taken 15 years here, but I mean, there's, it's actually, I talk to more people, even outside, obviously outside of the fringe thing who know in their heart, they may not even know all the details, but they've heard enough here and there that, you know, the majority of people that I come in contact with are at least suspicious of 9-11. Right, right, yeah. Well, that's true. That That's kind of how I was since the moment it happened, you know? Right. So I, that's, I think that's true for a lot of people, but, but I think maybe you're right. You know, maybe they didn't anticipate the, uh, the flood of truth or movements. Um, but you know, in light of that, I'm sure they, uh, have tried to infiltrate that as well and, and try to create sort of a, you know, controlled opposition. I mean, Alex yeah. Jones is the classic, uh, accused of that, you know, like, yeah. Oh, he's, he's being paid off by the, whoever the Jesuits or the Luciferians or whatever, Right. To, uh, you know, to perpetuate the opposite, you know, view or whatever. Yeah, totally. All right. So let's just get right into it. That's enough talky talky talk for us. Let's get into it. On September 11th, 1991, during the State of the Union address, George H.W. Bush called for a new world order. Some nine years later, in September of 2000, a report was published entitled Rebuilding America's Defenses, Strategy, Forces, and Resources for a New Century. In the document, put together by 28 of the most qualified minds in military and tech operations, it stated, quote, The process of transformation, even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor, end quote. One year later, they got their wish. The event traumatized and burned into the collective mind of society engraved by the numbers 9-11. The following years were swamped with the motto 9-11 was an inside job, along with the fury of conspiracy theories from controlled demolitions to the directed energy weapons thesis presented by Dr. Judy Wood to shape-shifting fallen angel aliens crashing into the towers as presented by super intense YouTube guy. But our guest today has a unique perspective on 9-11, given her 30-year experience as a flight attendant and proprietary knowledge of airplanes, universal FAA protocols, standardized flight crew procedures, and all hijacking policies. She's the author of the best-selling book, Methodical Illusion, where she outlines her investigation into 9-11 in a novel format. It is our honor to welcome Rebecca Roth to Canary Cry Radio. Rebecca, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks, Gans. <laughs> so, um, Rebecca Roth. So, first of all, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Second of all, flight attendant. Flight attendant to novelist. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about your background. Well, as you said in the introduction, I flew for about 30 years at the time of 9-11. And I had a very exciting 30-year career. Uh, I was an international purser, and I flew mostly international, but I got quite a bit of domestic flying in. So I've seen most of the United States. There's a couple little holes here and there. Nooks and crannies, I haven't quite made it to yet, but I'm going to drive to those. Mm -hmm. And um, I was that person on the crew that uh, always ended up hooking up with the celebrities or the sports figures uh, that always had that uber exciting life uh the you know my layover maybe i'd be going out to dinner with uh, some you know big 
NBA stars or uh, movie stars or singers or bands or whatever. And so everyone I flew with would say, oh, you ought to write a book. Well, I retired from flying in 2004. And let me just touch on this for a second. At the time of 9-11, luckily I was home. I'd just gotten home and I missed being on one of those planes by maybe about 10 hours or so. So the whole event, I mean, it was so, I was so, it could have been me on board. You know, it was just so touching to me, personal, that uh, I just, I couldn't look at it deeply, although that watching the whole thing unfold, and I was home for 10 days afterwards because my international schedule sort of allowed me to have time off, and then it fell apart. So when I started back to flying, uh, our airplanes were scattered all over the world. So I ended up actually flying a different route than I normally would have. And this is after nine eleven. Yeah, after nine eleven, because the planes were grounded. You'll remember. Well, in the United States, the planes were grounded for three or four days, and uh, the international people were stuck even longer. And then what happens? You know, we had airplanes that were sitting on the ground in places like Greenland that everybody just had to land. Once the ground stop happened, people just had to land at their nearest airport. So. There's some really wild stories about where people got stuck because wherever you could land a plane, you were you were going to get stuck there. And um, so, anyway, after I I saw you know what had happened, I thought, well, this is really odd. I watched the whole thing unfold from the moment that that second plane hit the South Tower on television. Someone called me, turn on your TV. I turned it on just in time to see that, and I thought, well. <laughs> This is some kind of trick photography. There's no way an airplane can fly into a building and disappear like I just saw. And I, they kept playing it, luckily, over and over and over, brainwashing me. Uh, and I, I, every time I looked at it, I thought, how did they make that happen? Because I'd studied crashes for 30 years as part of our yearly training. So I know what happens when airplanes hit anything, even a bird. Or a fence. You saw what yeah. happened just in LaGuardia with that Delta crash uh, just a month ago or so. I mean, just hitting a fence. It just sheared off one wing, broke the other wing in half, and it just ripped the whole fuselage, and the nose cone was missing. And they were going about 50, 50 miles an hour, maybe, so not very far, fast. Wow. So I watched the whole thing, kept thinking, well, that's weird. How can that happen? And then as it continued to unfold, and as those next three years came and went um, in our yearly training. If you were to ask about the events of 9 11, uh, the training instructors just looked at you like they could kill you for asking. It's a that's an out of bounds question type of thing, you know. Wow. And we studied this kind of hijackings every year. We had strict protocols. Well, so around 2000, and I know eight or nine, I'm retired now, so I don't keep track so much on the calendar. <laughs> And, uh, you know, uh, somewhere in there, I thought, well, I'm going to write a book about this mysterious lifestyle of being a flight attendant and how much fun I had. And I really did meet a lot of interesting people around the world. And so not really giving 9-11 much of a thought after I, I quit. I was what now I can look back now and tell you since I I do a wake up process in the book, the main character, the protagonist, Vera Hansen is uh, where I was, basically. And that was where I knew there was something wrong with the story. It didn't jive, but I couldn't look at it, especially when I was flying. You know, when you're flying, you're a professional flight attendant. You know that NORAD, 
and uh, our uh, fighter jets are scrambled within six minutes of something going wrong. Whether you lose contact or the radios break down or you know, there's a hijacking or whatever, six minutes. And uh, after 9-11, when we all knew that it took over an hour and a half to have that happen, it's not so easy to walk down the aisles looking at people smiling and thinking securely, hey, if anything happens on board, we're going to scramble jets and we'll have them at our wingtips in six minutes. Everything's cool. We'll take care of all that because we've all been trained to do that. Right. And uh, walking down the aisle after 9-11, looking at people, I'm just thinking, I don't know. (laughs) You guys have no safety net, neither do I. And it's a really uncomfortable feeling, you know, after 30 years or almost of feeling that comfort and knowing that this is what happens. And we saw it happen with that golfer who passed out when he was flying his little jet. And uh, it's just changed everything. And security, oh my goodness, went really crazy afterwards. uh, They formed the TSA, and the TSA quickly hired people that probably are working, I hate to say this, at Walmart, maybe now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you got the caliber of people. They were just hired people right off the street, not uh, professional security type people or anything. Right. And what they did was they targeted the crew members initially. And they liked to do it right there at the gate area in front of everyone. So they they wanted to give the passenger kind of a false sense of security. And so, you know, we would try to get, we're going to work. This We're not going on vacation. We're bringing our suitcase because we, we don't shuck our bags. Right. So they had a long table set up right there at the jetway as we're trying to get in to go to work and get the plane ready for the passengers uh, and rifling through our stuff, squeezing out our toothpaste, our suntan lotion, whatever we had. I mean, it was just insane. And so that got to be really problematic, you know, as the, uh, that, that last three years of my career just... It was horrible because we were treated like terrorists and so were the pilots. So these are all the things that I worked into the beginning part and the character development, the first, almost the first half of the book. I want people to understand, you know, what, how, how 9-11 affected us as crew members. I mean, they would practically strip search pilots if their belt buckle was uh, set off the security. I mean, I, I in uniform trying to get to work. Can you imagine <laughs> somebody trying to you right. know, take your belt off? Now take your shoes off. Now take your shirt, take your wings off. I mean, it was just really nuts. Right. And we all went through it. And um, then here's another thing. And I did work this right into chapter three, by the way, on my website, methodicalillusion.com, you can actually find the first three chapters of the book. And now I'm going to let you on the inside. A lot of that stuff is written, and it's very much 9-11, but veiled in the novel part, in the character development. There's an airplane crash, for instance, in a completely fictitious casino in Las Vegas. And when the flight attendants are hearing of this crash, they see that the building had been turned to dust much like the towers were, mm-hmm. and uh, that, that in fact, that there were no video or photographs coming into the television and the media for oh, over a day, and yet, just like in the Pentagon, where they, they captured 85 closed-circuit televisions from security uh, around the Pentagon and around the businesses around the Pentagon, within 30 minutes, just like those photographs are never going to be seen by us, so what hit the Pentagon? Same type of thing. So you see there's a lot of subliminal information in those first uh, 150 pages or so. 
Sure. To, to help you kind of subliminally connect 9-11 and the Pentagon and, and different things. And so you understand how the flight attendants are trained and what we study. And because of that, you will also know this because I'm going to tell you right now. So keep in mind, um, when you hear the story of Flight 93, Let's Roll, Todd Beamer, etc., those uh, lovely heroes that they created, that the flight attendants are totally in control. And if you don't think so, just try to get up and take control on the next airplane you're on. <laughs> um, so we train for uh, medical emergencies, evacuations, like we saw when the U.S. Airways went into the Hudson River in a ditchy. Right. And we're trained for hijacking procedures to the point where we have code words to use to let people on the ground know what's going on, let the pilots know what's going on, and specific step-by-step protocol that had been in place since the early 70s, had not changed on 9-11 at all for that many years. So every flight attendant that goes through their yearly training, their initial training is taught the same step-by-step procedures, none of which were followed on 9-11. Now, what what are some of those procedures that, I mean, if 9-11, you know, was a legit hijacking, how would that... uh have stopped it or affected the the outcome well maybe not so much that i can answer that that way but the fact that those procedures were not followed when i well here's what happened i'm starting to write this book and i want to grab a middle eastern gentleman for a character to bring into my novel fictitious i thought to myself okay i'll just i'll grab a first name from one of those 9-11 hijackers and a last name from another one so i google search 9-11 arab hijackers and up in front of me comes a bbc article that tells me at least six of them are alive that the saudi government is suing the fbi and the united states government for stealing the identity and claiming these guys are uh dead and they're very much alive and uh two or three of them were airline pilots still professionally and by the way they're still working and i was like what (laughs) and this was dated september 23rd 2001 i thought well okay i was really locked in on this whole thing for 10 days straight after 9-11 i was glued to my television for here's why every year we're told in our training who the uh, suspected hijackers troublemakers might be around this is worldwide because we know we travel around the world and never once was Osama bin Laden ever mentioned, and nor was a group called Al-Qaeda ever. So when 9-11 happened, I'm like, who are these guys? I right. had just been through training two months before. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait a minute, why didn't they tell us this? Who? I mean, how, how did they do this? How did they get control of NORAD? How yeah. did they unscramble mm-hmm. our jets that automatically scramble in six minutes? These are the questions that were just ripping through me that morning watching it on television. And so, looking back, when I found out that those guys were alive, it was, it was my, I said, people, it was my, my wake-up call, hello, and I was like, how, how, the, how did that happen? I mean, I, I saw what everyone saw on television, so that's how, that was my 9-11 information. I had never really dove into research. At that point, I put my book aside, and I dove into this, I, I, say I'm very much like that guy in Close Encounters. I didn't build the Devil's Triangle, but I had charts and graphs around my desk. You can't imagine. I was in this thing for 20 hours a day. I slept with my laptop reading until I fell asleep every night. I'm watching videos and dissecting through crazy theories that non-airline people created 
that they don't understand how we check in. They don't understand how how the whole inner workings of the airline works. They have no idea what, what our training is. And they created things like voice morphing and the, the crew members were a part of this They or they didn't exist. The flights didn't operate. I, I read through every nonsensical theory that you can imagine just you know, trying to see what was there. And so what I did was I got a hold of government documents, like a lot of what I did was find a, an FBI document. It's a 110-page document. Almost everything that's in the book about 9-11 is from that. So I, I used I didn't use goofy theories of people that don't know how. I mean, I look at that stuff, and I, <laughs> I was like, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, because I know how we check in. I know how when it happens. I know how many people we talk to. Because we're not passengers. We, it's our job, and our paycheck depends on it. And so, you know, we take it seriously. And the airlines all have a procedure set up where you, and, and including in the book, you're going to see this. And it's right in those first, uh, it's in the first chapter, actually. Uh, we go into our office and we check in and we get FAA bulletins, company bulletins. We meet our crew because it changes every time we go to work. And it's a different size depending upon what aircraft you're working. And then as a group, we walk to the airplane together. And so we can't be kidnapped. Somebody, I read actually read a theory that the flight attendants were replaced and kidnapped with some you know, people that really did it. Right. I was just so crazy. So that's what I did. I, I dissected this by knowing that one, cell phone calls do not work at altitude. And that was one thing that really, that was my first red flag that day. But I chose. Oh, you mean not- it in reference to people making yeah. phone calls mm-hmm, to their loved mm-hmm. ones? Yeah, okay. like the flight attendants. And so what I did was I, I deconstructed this using my knowledge, my experience of you know cell phones. One don't work. Two, air phones were horrible quality. Uh, three, or just so you know that um, American Airlines Flight Seventy Seven, Barbara Olson, whose husband said she called collect from her cell, and then he said he said she called from an air phone. Well, as of January 31st, 2001, American Airlines didn't have an air phone that worked on any of their 757s. Mm. So, I mean, it's just using that kind of information um, and knowing that you couldn't use more than two, well, sometimes even more than one, but usually a person could use an air phone in first class and maybe one could use one successfully in coach. But you couldn't have like Five people and flight 93 we had uh all of the heroes uh that decided that they'd take over the flight attendant's job and just take over the cockpit right, and there's right. it's really crazy because when i read that as a flight attendant when we bring a cup of coffee to the captain he sits on the left hand side of the airplane and we walk in behind him we have to hand his beverages over his left shoulder because in between the co-pilot and the captain is a box that's called the onboard flight computer. And if you drop water in there, you have a China syndrome on board. It's not a pretty picture. And so everyone's trained not to pass liquids over that. So the last thing we would do is, one, let passengers take over in a hijacking. That's just nonsense, totally. And two, bring pots of hot water to the cockpit because if you weren't going down, you would be going down. As I charted this information and the phone calls and the details that were supposedly being said on each and every flight, on that particular flight, you have a very, very narrow aisle. It's 24, 26 inches wide. 
for a man to go down the narrow aisle of a 757, anybody that's not used to tra- to walking down an aisle, a narrow aisle, with a coffee pot in your hands, uh, when the airplane is coming out of the sky six to 10,000 feet a minute, and at a 40-degree plus angle, and then upside down, even I couldn't have done that. Right, And so (laughs) when I built those charts and I saw that, oh, this is a make-believe story, and that's actually what I did. I I took the details one by one of what the flight attendant said on flight 11. Now, another thing that I noticed, you guys, is that each of the four planes that came that were that were done, one, two, three, four, I dissected them this way. Flight 11, two people called out. Flight uh, 175, from Boston, both from Boston, two people called out. They also called out at the same minute. And then uh, Flight 77, two people called out again. Mm. Only on Flight 93 did things change, and about 11 people called. Many of them called more than one call. Uh, Tom Burnett called his wife four or five times. There's some controversy she she says one number, the FBI says another. But there's controversy also because she was a retired flight attendant. And when she looked at her caller ID and it said Tom's cell, guess what she thought? Uh-oh, he didn't get on his flight. And so she picked up the phone and said, Tom, are you okay? What's up? She knew he wasn't at altitude because she's a flight attendant. She knows the, plane, the cell phones don't work up there. Right, and he yeah. says, no, I'm, I'm in the air. I'm on the plane. We've been hijacked. And she's like, her mind is saying, uh-uh. Oh, what's really going on? <laughs> and and so, you know, she's just trying to dissect all this because as a flight attendant, if you got a phone call from your spouse you that said you were on your cell, you would know you were on the ground. Now, in your charts, um, uh, have you worked through when those cell phone calls might, may have been made? Because obviously the planes have to come down lower uh, at lower in altitude in order to run into buildings. I mean, is there a possibility that those phone calls were made uh, during a lower altitude time, no. closer to the... the- well, let me tell you what happened. I guess it, it, it's kind of hard to dissect this, but let, let me just use the flight attendants on flight 11, and then I'll tell you how it was done. The flight attendant. this is kind of how I dissected this. The flight attendants, two of them, called in about 20 minutes, give or take, and again, the official times vary. So when I say about, I have I've read at uh, 19, 20, 21, or 22 minutes after departure from Boston. That's the official story. So uh, that's all I can go on. I mean, there's just, it's like there's multiple crash times for Flight 93, and it's a seven-minute variance. So mm. we have two flight attendants. They both call into company phone numbers. Betty Ong calls reservations, and Amy Sweeney calls, and they call at the same time. She calls to her supervisor, who she'd known for years and was personal friends with. He says she called from her cell phone. He should know. They're personal friends. And um, Betty Ong calls first. And the stuff that she said, you guys, and this is right out of an FBI transcript. She first says this. He, as in one hijacker, this is a little different story than what we were told. He has sprayed pepper spray or mace in business class, and we can't breathe in business class. She's calling from her jump seat at 3R, which is about 150 feet away from business class. He's in the very tail section of the airplane. And I thought to myself, well, that's interesting, because I remember immediately 
leaving Hawaii, some cheap perfume being sprayed in one section, the whole airplane's choking on it, right? And complaining about it. And I thought, well, pepper spray or mace, if you spray that in a pressurized cabin, everyone's going to be suffering from the effects of it. And yet, she was on the phone for 27 minutes, never once complained, never once coughed, or had complained that her eyes were watering or she couldn't breathe. Mm. And I dawned on me right then and there that uh, the other flight attendant didn't have a problem either, a breathing. And if you were pressurized, uh, you would have the effects of that. I don't care where you sat. You could have been hiding in a bathroom. You're going to breathe in that air. It's all recirculated. And right. the pepper spray and mace, if you've ever been a part of a, a you know, Occupy crowd or something where the police now in the last couple of years have gotten a little bit out of control, I like to spray stuff like that. You're going to remember what it's like. And I actually got caught once with uh, in a in a Korea in a riot. So I've had some experience with that myself. And I thought, well, no, that's not right. That tells me the plane wasn't pressurized. And then Betty Ong says, again, he stood upstairs. And there are no stairs on a 767. There's only a 747 that has stairs. And so I thought, well, okay, well, that sounds like they're in a hangar and they're no longer pressurized. And then um, she said, we're the first. And I thought, wow, somebody told her the scenario, because this was the first plane, remember? Flight 11 supposedly supposedly went into the North Tower. That's right. the first plane. And someone had to have told her that, because there's no way she would know what was coming in the future. We're the first? And then she said, we're in the air, we're up in the air, we're up in the air, we just left Boston, we're up in the air. We're, I think, but I don't know, we might be being hijacked. And let me tell you this, if you've been hijacked, of course you're in the air. It's like if you've been carjacked, you're in your car, you're not on your bike, you know? But you don't have to say you're in the air because if you were on the ground, you'd open the door and get the passengers out. Um, And I thought, well, that in the air comment is very odd for her to say because it's unnecessary. And it and she also didn't ever follow any uh, protocol. She was talking to people in the company, both of these girls, and they never really gave the correct, they never followed protocol. Let me just say that. They didn't give the right information out. And she was confused. And you will not be confused as a flight attendant that's highly trained, uh, hijackers on board, you know it. It's not, I don't know, we might be. She knew something was going on, but she didn't know what. So that told me that it wasn't a typical hijacking with a hijacker in the aisle. Obviously, he stood upstairs, so he was in some sort of hangar. And if you've never been in a big airplane hangar, like 747 hangar, there's stairs in every corner pretty much. And up above, there's a mezzanine level where there's office spaces. And then I, I was dissecting the next flight attendant, that same, the same caller, uh, same flight that called in. She called her supervisor, whom she had just stood in front of when she checked out that morning from leaving Boston, because that's what you do. You check in and you say, you sign out and say, I'm on flight 11 today. You're signing, you're, it's like you sign your pay sheet, right? Right, right. <clears throat> and, um, like I said, he was personal friends with her. He knew her probably from training for 10, 15 years, somewhere in there. And, um, when she calls in, she calls several times, but she initially made a mistake a flight attendant would never make. And she said, the hijacker, again, one single person, a he, he was seated at 9B. And you would never do that. Because if I said, 
yeah, that guy in <laughs> six uh, B is the hijacker, and nine B is the hijacker. Here's what we would do in a hijacking: our protocol is to get that airplane on the ground to liberate you passengers mm-hmm. and get the airplane free from that person. And then sometimes uh, that includes being uh, rushed by some sort of SWAT team or special ops group. You know, maybe it's uh, Army Rangers or Navy SEALs or people that are actually trained to do this. Right. Depending upon where you land, what you're going to get, right? Maybe it's FBI people. But what if you told them that the hijacker was in 9B and they they come on the plane to liberate it, there's a big chance an innocent person would be killed if you labeled that person as the hijacker. Right. So it's not something we would do. We're more, much more careful than that. And that was another thing I thought, well, that's weird. And they're both saying it's just one he. As instead of the official story, there were four or five guys on each plane. Right. And then I got to look in at 9B, and lo and behold, if he isn't a highly trained assassin from a foreign intelligence agency, can you believe that? <laughs> and not only that, I mean, I was just blown away when I got into this. I was like, what? But what the actual these? guy sitting on 9B? 9B, mm-hmm, the one they said was the hijacker. On the manifest. Yeah, 9B. Mm-hmm. And so and Betty, or Amy Sweeney calls in. She says, he's the hijacker, 9B. I look him up. <clears throat> There's a lots on information. If you just Google search nine passenger nine B on flight eleven on nine eleven, uh, there's uh, millions of pages. He's actually a hero in his country. Uh, he is. We are to believe that he uh, was killed by a plastic box cutter. Yet he was a highly trained assassin, and his friends said that he could kill any human being with a pen and a credit card. He was traveling on business, and I'm sure he had a pen and a credit card. Well, even more interesting about this character, he was fluent in English. He grew up in Denver, Colorado. He uh, was fluent in Hebrew because he moved to Israel when he was 14. He was fluent in Arabic, which is the language of the hijackers, supposedly. So here... um, as the story goes, he was also not just a highly trained assassin for a special ops unit of the Israeli Defense Forces, Mossad, whatever it is, uh, called the Sayeret Met Call. They're highly trained assassins. Mm-hmm. They're uh, trained in hijack uh, procedures, hijack uh, anti-hijack specialists, and they're also trained in hostage rescue. Now, hostage rescue forces are who would liberate our airplane. That's the same kind of people that if we landed in Cleveland and um, we had a hijacking on board, the SWAT team would come on. That's what they're trained to do, hostage rescue. Because at that point, you're considered a hostage if you're a passenger. And I thought, well, what are the chances that this guy... And so the story goes, she calls back to her supervisor and says, oh, no, I made a mistake. The hijacker's in 10B. And so we're expected to believe now that a, a guy who's fluent in Arabic is listening to the guys, two guys behind him that are the two supposed Arab hijackers speaking in Arabic, planning the new Pearl Harbor. The first hijacking of 9-11 in Arabic, and he hears it, he does nothing, and they are managed to kill the guy who could kill any human being with a pen and a credit card with a plastic box cutter and a quarter-inch blade. Hello, are you stretching your mind to that reality? That's the official story. And when I read that, I thought, wow, I missed all that. So, <laughs> I didn't know so that. that's the official story that as, the official, as written mm-hmm. down in the FBI files. That's the official story. He was the first casualty right. of 9-11. Yeah. That, so that's it. either 
this <laughs> crazy Israeli defense force assassin somehow is defeated and 9-11 uh, happens, how we're told, or something else happened. Yeah, well, that's exactly what hit me like a ton of bricks, because putting together the fact that the plane could not have been pressurized with pepper spray or mace in the cabin, right. two, that there were stairs mentioned, there was a possible confusing type of hijacking situation, but she wasn't sure what was going on. And then she said another thing that that triggered the rest of this, uh, you know, really, for me, it was a, it was like a collapse of my reality. And what she said was, we can't communicate with the pilots. They they aren't answering their phone. Well, first off, early on in a flight like that, within the first 18 to 20 minutes, there isn't a flight attendant in the back cabin that would call the pilots for any reason unless there was an emergency on board or they had started a descent. Because mm. she would be busy doing her breakfast service, and she was probably in the back galley. Uh, position so she'd be loading meal carts making coffee juice and that's one of the things that would be going on we can't call the cockpit unless there's an emergency until the aircraft reaches 10,000 feet and so that first you know five to eight minutes or so and then we don't get out of our jump seats until the aircraft levels off at cruise altitude pretty much almost so for the first so this, 15 so minutes story continues to not line up yeah it continues to kind of all apart as a flight attendant i mean i'm like why would that be well here's what triggered this in the 90s there was a company called spc corporation that sold a flight termination system this is the same system we use now to operate our drones around the world mm -hmm. and spc corporation had an interesting ceo I, I didn't know any of this until I really got into this research. Right. The CEO was a guy named Rabbi Dov Zakheim. He was also the comptroller of the United States Pentagon. He was under investigation for misplacing $2.3 trillion. Right. And Donald Rumsfeld announced that on September 10th, 2001, that this this money had been <laughs> misplaced, and they were in, in a serious investigation. And that was also taking place in the Pentagon. Coincidentally, right near, um, well, let me just say this. The, the main offices that were doing the investigation were not next to each other, but they were both completely wiped out. I believe one uh, unit lost about 80 or 84 uh, investigators that were hot on the trail of <clears throat> that money. Mm -hmm. wow. And I'm not sure how the hijackers knew that they should target that particular office, but somehow they thought that would help them in their cause, I guess. <laughs> okay, we're starting to put it together now. So here is, here's this thing. It's called, uh, some airlines called it, I believe American called it, the flight interruption system. But the flight termination system was a kind of an easy, simple plug-in device to that onboard computer that sits between the pilots. And so what that was was a remote control device. And since the 70s, they've had these devices where they've actually uh, flown an airplane from California to Australia remotely. Wow. A 737. So this has been, this is not anything new, but this is how it was sold to some of the commercial carriers in the United States. Not all of them bought it. But it was sold, listen carefully to these words, in the event of a hijacking, and a hijacker would take over the cockpit... 
we could, we, I'm not sure who that is, but I think I have a pretty good idea now. I always wondered, who's we? We could take uh, over remotely and land the aircraft where it would be liberated by, you know, some Delta Force or something. Wow. Now, on 9-11, we had four aircraft that we were led to believe were taken over by hijackers inside the cockpit. Well, you're going to ask yourself right now, I know, <laughs> slapping yourself saying, why didn't, we, why didn't we use that flight termination system that day? Mm-hmm. Because it was already in use. And what happens when the flight termination system takes over an aircraft? They lose all communication. Let me repeat that. When the flight termination system takes over a commercial airplane... They lose all communication, including with the pilot, uh, the flight attendants in the cabin. And what did Betty Ong say? The pilots are not picking up their phone. We can't get into the cockpit. We can't talk to the pilots. They're not answering their phone. Bingo. And I was, I'm telling you guys, when I saw, when that hit me, and I started doing this research with the, I, I read tons and tons, thousands of hours of stuff. And then I said, you know what? Those flight attendants were calling me. I'm going to start right there with those two girls. And I started there on flight 11 with those two flight attendants because that's who I knew. That was my job. I put my flight attendant shoes on. I walked that aisle and I thought, now, if I were Betty Ong, what would I be doing that 18 minutes, that first 18 minutes? Well, I'd be in my jump seat <laughs> for quite a while. And why would I call the pilots? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't because I'd be making juice and coffee and cooking the eggs. Uh, somebody's got to do those green eggs and and spam for you. <laughs> right. Position probably. I'm thinking. So, okay. Well, there's a there's an interesting little side piece too that you mentioned, uh, Rabbi Sackheim, uh, the CEO of SPC International. Uh, I think it was between '87 and 2001, and um, I believe there's a subsidiary, right, mm-hmm. of SPC, uh, yeah. Tri Tri Data Corporation, Tri-data. that was a uh, part of the investigation of the World Trade Center attacks in '93. Which gave him all the uh, the blueprints of uh, yeah, the two towers. Yeah, yeah. that's true. They actually are had some of the reconstruction. Uh, so they had the, they're the only company that had blueprints. And you know, I since my books come out, I've become friends with a lot of uh, people, interesting people like Richard Gage from Architects and Engineers for Nine Eleven Truth, and even they can't get a hold of the blueprints. And that that those buildings have been gone for over a decade. Yeah, they can't get them, a copy of them. But Dov Zakheim's Tridata subsidiary company did. You know, he also is uh, connected in another interesting way to 9-11 as well. He were, here we had a dual citizen with a foreign country as the comptroller of the Pentagon. The comptroller is the main banker of the Pentagon. He was also associated with a consortium or a group that did something else. They refurbished commercial 767s and turned them into military tankers and sold them to militaries around the world. They took commercial 767s to an Air Force base in a sort of a place in Florida. I believe it was Eglin Air Force Base that they're kind of connected to. And they refurbished that commercial 767 and turned it into a refueling tanker. Now, how connected to that is 9-11? We got a guy who, whose subsidiary company has the blueprints to the towers. Mm-hmm. He has access to military tankers that are 767s. And if you look a little bit deep into this, you'll see that airline pilots claim that that airplane that we think is Flight 175 has some sort of additional thing on the bottom, possibly right. the remote control device. So it's often referred to as a pod. 
it's not normal, and that the distance between the nose and the leading edge of the wing is longer than a 200 series extended range 767. So it's more like the, the plane they use for the refueling tankers. Mm. And that's the stuff I've read some pilots that are out there into planes. I'm not into planes, but uh, they are. So I'm okay. Well, that's kind of coincidental that we've got this guy. Well, he's not the only dual citizen I found. We got 9B, who's also a dual citizen, U.S. Israel, who's a highly trained assassin on our first aircraft. Now, what are the chances, right? Well, it gets deeper than that. The guys who ran uh, security at the towers, uh, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And so when people ask me, what about these redacted 28 pages that are pointing to Saudi Arabia? And they're, you know, people want them brought out. And that is a complete distraction. I, I found no Arab Saudi Arabians connected to and down any rabbit hole I went down. I did exactly find... A Middle Eastern country connected, but they're not a Muslim country. Hmm. Much like uh, the country that uh, Dov Zakheim has his other citizenship with. Right. So, okay. Uh, you mentioned before that the transcripts, the ma uh, manuscripts from the FBI pointed to an airplane that was unpressurized and possibly in a hangar. Right? That's right. Okay, and now we have remote control devices being used on the same planes, planes which uh, could have been adapted for military use or military refueling. What is, can you put all these pieces together for us? What exactly I, do you think happened? I did, and that's kind of what I, what I wanted to do with my main character, my target audience for people... I didn't know at the time that I wrote this that there are millions of people out there that looked at what I saw on TV and thought the same thing. That's not right. And for this whole 14 years, they've thought, something's not right here. Because I've sold thousands of books now. I mean, the book went up uh, overall on Amazon to like number nine uh, for a while. I mean, right out of eight million books, it just you know kicked off after a certain radio show that I did. And I have I'm inundated with emails of people saying, "Yeah, I've always thought that was odd at Shanksville. There was no plane crash there and stuff like that." So, you know, what I did was I took my main character and I gave her piece by piece, a little bits at a time. As she wakes up, the reader wakes up, and it's very been very very effective to lay this out. So very methodically. My character goes through these protocols not being followed, the flight termination system taking over the planes remotely, how they lost all communication, um, the companies that were involved in the cover-up. Now, this is another interesting factor. There were two companies that were sitting in the FAA headquarters for two years prior to 9-11. One was called P-TECH, the other called MITRE, M-I-T-R-E. Those MITRE is really a radar specialist, and P-TECH was again a foreign-owned uh, so so startup software company, foreign-owned. They were basically three years old when they got into, at the time of 9-11, they were on board 22 U.S. government computer systems. Now, that's an interesting history with P-TECH. They come from a, uh, an Israeli company, kind of a spin-off from a couple communications companies. And by the way, 9B, 
he was a communications company specialist. His uh, company was called, mm, I forget, it's kind of a Hawaiian name. Like, I want to say Ak- Ak- Akamai. I forgot what Akamai, I think, was his company's name. It was a communication, internet uh, and communication company. Security, internet security, and that sort of thing. It's very interesting, the people that are connected to this. But in the mid-80s, there was some software called Promise Software, made by a company called Inslaw, that was stolen by the head of the Israeli Mossad. And they had a backdoor installed in the software. This is a software that allowed them to plant porn on your computer or mine, or take money out of our bank account, or make things appear or disappear on radar, or make your phone lines not work. It's a real uh, interesting thing. So here we have the startup company. Now, interesting characters. We've got a big financial uh, guy from Lebanon who's uh, supporting this P-Tech company, this three-year-old startup company. And we've got another one from Saudi Arabia. That's the only person I saw. He was just a financial backer. And then their marketing guy who got, got into all of the computers through Michael Chertoff, who's also a dual citizen with Israel, uh, it was called Michael Goff. And Michael Goff just coincidentally looks exactly like, a, I mean, twins, to a character that was on Flight 93 called Jeremy Glick. Jeremy Glick was an interesting character, six foot two, 225 pound judo champion. And instead of taking care of the five foot six hijackers that day, he sat on the phone to his wife on Flight 93 <laughs> until they decided to take over the cockpit away from the flight attendants first. <laughs> And then the and then the hijackers. Right. Uh, it's an interesting story. So again, another connection. Also on flight ninety three, there was another Jewish man killed, uh, stabbed, named uh, Mark Rothenberg. And um, so it's just kind of interesting. You see these uh, things. You know, it's uh, I'm I'm a really good person for dissecting things and uh, looking for groupings. Things that don't one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> You know, that show. (laughs) And so I'm one of those people that can pick stuff out like, oh, that's the same here. And so that's kind of how I used this is putting all of these people together. And Well, that's an interesting coincidence. There's another dual citizen here. Well, interesting, interesting, interesting. So. Anyway, I kind of sidetracked on on your questions. So I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. But it, I mean, it's just it's just so amazing that I found all this. You know, when I went into doing this research, I I, uh, I heard the official story. I couldn't get any answers from the FAA or for the for the company that I worked for. And how did this happen? How? Here's the most important uh, question that should have been answered by all of the flight attendants that called in. How? Did someone get in the cockpit? Because that's what we would want to avoid ever happening again. How? They kicked the door in. They they got a cockpit key from someone. They came on board with one. Maybe they're already on a jump seat. There, were, there had to be a reason how they got in there, a method. And that was the key factor that no one ever said, how they got in. How is the most important detail a flight attendant could have said that day? And, and we already knew they were in the cockpit. How did they get in? That's the that's how you would want to. Right, right, absolutely. So, anyway, so did and I do you, have a, do you have a theory about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, they, um, well, they didn't need to be. You see, with the flight termination system, right. that's taken over from the ground. Yeah. And um, you see, we we run our drones in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Oman. Uh, that's quite a ways away. In case you haven't ever been there, it's a long journey. Um, we run those from Creech Air Force Base mostly in uh, Nevada. 
just north yeah. of Las Vegas. I mean, that's a big drone uh, control base. And so it's not like they had to be on board. They could have had, uh, they, I'm sure they did have not hijackers, but handlers. Now, I've been contacted since the book came out by some people from American and United that swear up and down that the official, uh, the real uh, passenger manifest never had one Arab name on them. Wow. And and so and there's another interesting thing that I I found out later too again after I because I I'm re- still researching but um, that the first 72 hours after this 9/11 event when the original people that the FBI claimed were the part of the 19 there were four of them they changed them out in that somewhere in that first 72 hours well America was unfurling our flags and oiling our guns looking to see who were those people that we were going to kill uh we needed to get rid of somebody and we're going to war we're shoot tell me who to shoot right I and mean, everybody right. was reacting this way and traumatized we we weren't paying attention to these details but there are these four characters and now the fbi originally claimed that these names were on the passenger manifest one of the things i found was the fbi has lied and lied and lied and covered up uh, all of this information, I'm reading it in an FBI document. You've never heard these details unless you've heard an interview or, or read the book. I mean, I hadn't read them before or heard them, and I was paid close attention. It was my world. How did you so, get these secret documents? You know, I found them online, actually, and uh, they're not secret. They're, uh, I can send you a link to them. Anybody that's listening, wants, <laughs> you can email me off my website, uh, methodicalillusion.com. There's a contact, Rebecca, and there's a, a button on the homepage where you can just click and it'll shoot me an email and fill it or fill in your information so if you want the pdf it's in a pdf i found online and uh, i found women involved not necessarily 19 hijackers that were men from uh, saudi arabia or someplace but here's the interesting thing that first 72 hours the original fbi statement was that there were these four other individuals who are not listed right now on wikipedia as the 19 the two of the guys they were the same last name was called bukhari and b i think it was b-h-u-k-a-r-i was their last name adnan and amir i think were their names well interestingly enough one of those brothers, I believe it was Adnan, if I remember correctly, is an FAA employee in aviation security. He showed up alive when he found out he was he was being fingered on the worldwide television as a terrorist and dead. And he's an FAA aviation specialist in Florida. So he shows up and the other guy, his brother, who they claimed was also on another plane, or they were on the same plane, I don't remember their fake story, but this is what the FBI was doing to us. And most of us don't even know this. Um, They were claiming that these two brothers were on the passenger manifest, and they were, you know, hijackers, or at least one of the planes, or maybe they're on two planes, but um, uh, his brother had been dead for a year and died in a small, like a Cessna-type small aircraft crash in Florida a year before. Oddly enough, on September 11th, 2000. Mm. And then there were two other guys, same last name, I just don't recall what it is. And that's kind of a, a longer, you know, Middle Eastern, you know, type of name. I just don't recall. It's just not that important because they sure. showed up alive, too. It's almost like they're, they're just kind of <laughs> like swapping names just to create this facade. Just to, well, uh, a lot. Yeah, that's true. A lot of the hijackers kind of had the same type of name. Right. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it just seems like they're, 
yeah, it's 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 to fabricate this whole mm-hmm. story. But yeah, j- in terms of just getting back to j- just the flights in general, uh, at least the two that hit the towers specifically. In terms of like a timeline, so are you suggesting that when you know normal flight flight takes off and they were detoured, or maybe they they took a a, a quick landing somewhere and then meanwhile, hear, well, I'll tell you what happened. Okay, the, yeah. Um, the yeah. two first two planes, flight eleven and flight one seventy five, American and United, took off from Boston. We know that flight eleven had two flight attendants calling out at approximately twenty to twenty one minutes after departure from Boston. So they didn't get very far. Here's something else I know that that aircraft full of fuel needs at least a ten thousand foot long runway. They needed to go someplace where there weren't other passengers and the general public. Mm-hmm. And um, both of the, all of the phone calls work. And what I found was a C-5 transport base that was used for reserves only. It had an 11,595-foot runway. Mm. It's within 20 minutes of Boston. It's uh, within the exact time of the phone calls that were made from Flight 77 and Flight 93. All of the calls were made from cell phones or air phones or office phones, whatever phones, on the ground, in a hangar. There are five or six gigantic hangars at this location that will accommodate aircraft like a C-5. If C-5 transports larger than a 747, it's the one you see on the Theraflute commercial that's playing right now that the whole nose opens up. Mm-hmm. And you right. see, uh, what was the guy's name that did the uh, <laughs> the video where, uh, what's it, Christmas time? Where he was standing on the wingtips. It was, uh, what's his name? Oh, Chuck, oh. Chuck Norris or some yeah, one of those characters. Yeah, those are C5 transports. They're huge, actually. And, um, and I used to fly a lot of military charters, and we'd go into an Air Force base, and the guys would, you think that 747's big. Look at how tiny it looks next to this C5. So um, what I did was I found, and I teach the reader how to do this. There's a a website online where you can go and, and punch in airport codes and it'll tell you how long it takes to get there from pushback to gate in pretty much. And you can put in wings, uh, wind, speed, whether it's seasonal, none, light winds, whatever, and a little pull-down menus. And I really teach the reader step-by-step exactly how to do this and find out what time those phone calls were made. Again, like I said, two people were taken off of each aircraft once they got on the ground. And in order to understand this, I wish I could just plug in all my 30 years of being a flight attendant and understanding the psychology of crew members and how we, when we put on our uniform, our job is one thing and one thing only. That is your safety as a passenger and the safety of our aircraft. That's our first and foremost. When we stop being a mom and a sister and a good neighbor next door and we become your Gatekeeper, we are your safety, whether you have a heart attack, whether you get burned, whether you need to be evacuated in water, on land, in foam, (laughs) or in a hijacking, we are there to protect you, the passengers. And so that's our job. And so in order for these handlers, I refer to them as, because there weren't 19 Arab hijackers on, there were these handlers. These are trained people, like kind of like that guy 9B, the trained assassin, similar to that. Yeah. Um, he actually had this kind of training, as a matter of fact. he Remember, he was a hostage rescue specialist and an anti-hijacking specialist. So he was highly trained to do this, and he knew exactly what would happen in a hijacking. Because yeah. 
And that's, that's what he trained for. See, he knew you know, lots of stuff. But what they didn't know was how the FAA trained us. And they also didn't know this. They didn't know that in America, we are not referred to as airline hostesses. <laughs> right, right. But, but, you know, if you do a quick Google search on LL, airline hostess, look at the images. Uh, you can, can't do that with uh, Delta. Because we're called flight attendants since 1968. Before that, we were called stewardesses. And one of the passengers on flight 175, Peter Hansen, 32-year-old gentleman, so all of his life he'd been hearing us uh, workers in airplanes called flight attendants, his entire lifetime. And he calls in at three minutes before impact to the South Tower, flight 175, supposedly. And he says to his dad, the airline hostess has been stabbed. And I went, what? <laughs> no American speaks that way. Yeah, airline hostess. Okay, there was another huge red flag that whoever was writing the script was used to calling us airline hostesses. So that's very, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's a big red flag. Okay, let me just say that. And so um, then, and I'm thinking, okay, this is three minutes before impact. And then he said something else. He says to his dad, yeah, I think the hijackers are going to fly us to Chicago. Three minutes before impact, visualize Manhattan, because that's what he would be seeing out his window. Yeah. He, and look how low they had to be three minutes before departure. We can see that airplane coming in. It's not very high. We think they're going to fly the airplane to Chicago and fly us into a building. And I thought to myself that at that time, this is like 14 minutes after something hit the North Tower. 14 minutes. There's no way they knew on board because we didn't know on the ground until after something hit the South Tower what was going on i mean some people thought that was a missile that hit the north tower some people thought it was a helicopter small aircraft nobody thought it was a 767 uh the all the eyewitnesses originally reported it was a small aircraft or a military aircraft and uh the police were getting reports that it was a missile fired from the woolworth building so here he's telling us and i thought well shoot somebody told him the scenario just like betty ong said we're the first Somebody told her you're going to your plane's the first of four aircraft. Well, what I've deduced with a lot of flight attendants and pilots that have come forward, what we collectively have deduced is the handlers told the crew members and the passengers that they were part of an ongoing war game that day. There were more than a dozen U.S. military war games taking place on the morning of 9/11. Some of them were actually war games drilling of airplanes crashing into buildings, including FEMA, who was in downtown New York and Manhattan, just down the street. They'd all arrived mm -hmm. on February 10th to do a drill on February 11th. February? I mean, excuse me, September. <laughs> September. Sorry, February, where did that come from? And so, <laughs> and so you see that... Um, I might have read that in February because it's just in there somewhere. Right. But you see, there was all of these drills going on. And the only way that you could commandeer our aircraft from us as uh, pilots and flight attendants is to say, okay, you're part of an ongoing drill. We're drilling the FAA air traffic control or NORAD. We've taken over your plane remotely. And we're going to take two people off the aircraft to make these phone calls. Now, So this is requiring a lot of deception just on the... Uh, uh, on the account of uh, the the passengers and the the airline hostesses. Well, I think what happened 
uh, from what I can see, and I've got, I've got the radar data now. I've got a terabyte of radar data and other information from flight uh, from 9/11. So, what I'm dissecting now is that these planes were taken over when they left Boston, and they were landed there, and real quickly. And there, the pilots, you see, they would be, uh, and the flight attendants too. The aircraft would be ascending to 35,000 feet. Let's just say, and that's going to take you, you know, roughly 20 minutes or thereabouts, depending upon the traffic on, you know, climb out out of Boston. And so instead of that, uh, at around uh, 8.13 or so on flight 11, actually, uh, the flight termination system takes over and it starts the aircraft descending. The pilots and the flight attendants can't speak to each other. The pilots can't speak to anybody on the ground. They don't know what's going on, but their aircraft is landing itself. And now... Pilots knew that this thing was on there, but it was on in the event of a hijacking and a hijacker was in the cockpit, not the pilots sitting there. So they would have immediately thought that it was a mechanical, that for some reason they were losing altitude and they're descending. At some point, whether it was when they got on the ground or at that point, but listen, a, a, a hijack specialist, a hostage rescue person, they know exactly where our PA is and where it works because that's one of the first things they would do when they liberate the aircraft. They would come on and grab the, <laughs> the PA system and tell all the passengers to be seated. There's the SWAT team on board. Everyone, please seize it. Or they would tell them to put their head down. Or they they know where the PA system is. It's not something that it would be foreign to them. So maybe before they land, the handlers on board made an announcement, and they either used a cell phone jammer because on flight eleven there were nearly a hundred passengers and crew members, and only two people made phone calls. What we believe happened, and this is collectively with people from United and American. And myself, uh, with many, many, many years of his of history with the airline, to collectively lots, hundreds, and pilots that knew these people, the crew members uh, personally, and that they were most likely told by the handlers that they were part of a drill, and they either used a cell phone jammer, or they uh, before they landed collected all the cell phones, probably a cell phone jammer, because that way, if somebody kept a phone, they they couldn't get through. Hmm. And so that's what they did. They said, we need two people to make phone calls, and those two people were taken off the aircraft. And why I say that is, I still got you on, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Why I say that is that the two flight attendants, Amy Sweeney and Betty Ong from Flight 11, were also giving totally conflicting information. In a hijacking, one of the important things for us to do is to give whoever we're talking to on the ground, specific information about the type of weapons, if they have guns. I mean, we, we uh, know the ingredients of a bomb. We know what gu- certain guns are. We, we would give information, detailed information of what was going on. And the details were not ever given correctly. And so one of the things that I noticed is Amy Sweeney was saying that a uh, a doctor and a nurse were tending to 9B, the guy who'd been stabbed. And Betty Ong was saying, we we uh, we uh, requested, you know, through the PA, we, we asked for medical personnel, and there isn't anyone on board to help. Hmm. Now, that's very conflicting information. Right. And it's and also Amy Sweeney said that Betty Ong and her were both seated in the second to the last row in coach. Keep in mind, this is. Um, 
the aircraft uh, have 767 is what they're on is 159 feet long from the cockpit door to the tail to the end of the aisle so they're in the second to the last row they're about 150 feet away from the cockpit and the hijackers and the stabbed guy who was up in business class Right. So it's really, that's a very long distance to know what's going on. And the fact that Amy Sweeney said they were both sitting there together, but yet Betty Ong said at least 10 times she was seated at 3R, her jump seat. They're very different. You're either in a coach seat or you're in a jump seat, but you're not there. You know what I'm saying? They're saying different things. They're right. conflicting. Right. Yeah. And so I saw a lot of conflict between these two flight attendants on, on that very first flight, which told me that this was not what was going on. And then when I followed through things like on Flight 93 where, well, let me touch first before I go on Flight 93. On, also on Flight 175, there was another interesting guy that called in at the same time Peter Hansen that called us airline hostess, the same time he called 9 o'clock, three minutes before impact South Tower. He's an F-14 pilot, according to the official story in the FBI documents. I later found out that he's not really a pilot from someone <laughs> whose husband flew with him. Hmm. <laughs> he was a radar specialist. And uh, he sat in the back seat of an F-14, I guess. So, and so the FBI calls him an F-14 pilot, Miramar Train, San Diego, Top Gun School. That's where the Blue Angels train. Mm -hmm. I actually flew with some. So um, according to this story, he calls his mommy at 9 o'clock, three minutes before impact. She asks him, where are you? And he says he's over Ohio. Well, from Boston to Ohio, it's an hour and 50 minutes. And this flight now is in the air for about 45, maybe 44 minutes. He should know where he's at. He's looking out the window. What does he see? Manhattan. Right. He's a pilot. And I thought, well, now that's really odd. And then he says something else. He says, well, we're thinking a bunch of us passengers, this is eight minutes after supposedly they've figured out they're hijacked. A bunch of us passengers are talking about taking over the cockpit. And I went, hey, wait a minute. That's the scenario from Flight 93 where they created all the heroes. And, sh and shortly after, they made a movie. They wrote a couple books. And do you know, interestingly enough, most of the women that were married to the heroes, let's roll kind of guys on yeah. Flight 93, uh -huh. all got big book contracts from big publishers. Mm. And the movie was made, don't forget, Flight 93. I think right. they made two movies. I think they did a, a TV movie and then a Hollywood uh, theater movie. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, I just put all this stuff together and I just went, wait a minute. Again, we are highly trained in a hijacking. There are specific things we do and do not do. Right. And one of the things that I noticed is when, when uh, Tom Burnett called in to his wife, the ex-flight attendant, the retired flight attendant, she told him one of those things, word for word FAA protocol. She said, Tom, sit down and do not draw attention to yourself. And that is word-for-word word FAA mm. protocol. And she's a flight attendant. That's how I knew this. She really was a flight attendant. She knew word-for-word word our protocol to follow. That's what a flight attendant would have done. And yet on flight 11, we're expected to believe that some of the flight attendants were walking up and down the aisles, bringing Betty Ong information of what right. was going on in coach. Right. That is impossible. That would not have happened. Well, now, what do you think happened to the people that made the phone calls if they were you know, either pulled out, you know, being told it's a drill or, you know, read this, maybe forced to or whatnot, whatever the situation. And then what happened to the rest of the passengers, do you think? Well, you know how the Illuminati, who they are, the cabal, likes to give us a little 
uh, tickler, a little heads up like the lone gunman was put out March of 2001, where they, you know, that TV show where they were flying a plane into the World Trade Center. Sure. That kind of stuff. Well, all as I was going through all of the phone calls from the passengers and the flight attendants, there were certain words and phrases used, mace or pepper spray being one of them. So we collectively, the airline people, that have, professionals that have contacted me and have had many conversations since the book came out, believe that those two people were taken off the aircraft and that more than likely some type of canister of something more lethal than pepper spare mace was put inside the cabin. Mm. If the flight mm. crews, the flight attendants, were told they were part of a drill, we commonly drill at our recurrent training with smoke bombs and to... Uh, simulate smoke in the cabin we use uh, smoke goggles and use uh, smoke machines like fog making machines so it so we practice so we know what those yellow or red and white lights on the aisle way that we always point to before takeoff right. where you're going to go follow your exits we know what they look like when the cabin's full of black smoke this is the kind of things we do in our training. And so if they would have been told that, and the only reason the pilots and the flight attendants wouldn't have fought the handlers back is that they were told they were part of a drill. If they would have used some kind of gas like that, they would have pulled the people off to make the phone calls, and then those people in the aircraft would have been taken out by something more lethal than pepper spray. Right. Wow. So now I'm getting um, a lot of pieces to a puzzle here. <laughs> and... You know, really, really fascinating. A lot of this stuff, you know, your perspective is is totally new. I'm sure somebody has told you that before, but to hear this from somebody with as much insight on that part of the whole situation is actually really, really fascinating. I am having a little bit of trouble, though. What do you think the actual collision was? You mentioned that the video didn't look right. You mentioned that the plane looked like one of those tankers you're talking about and we've got ro remote control systems uh, but then we've got these planes and hangars what right what, what well, do you here's, think actually happened to the towers because there's a lot a, of theories and evidence about demolition yeah, as well yeah and there there are so many crazy theories um what I set out to find was what happened to the real planes and the passengers and crew members right. and I found that and right. What, what's been interesting is I have so many United and American, I mean, these are the two airlines that were involved and pilots that are um, actually buying the book by cases now uh, and handing them out. Wow. And they're 100% certain that this is exactly how it happened. I found all the players, how it was covered up. Just also so you know, this company, P-TECH and MITRE, that were in the FAA headquarters, they had a job that day. There were over a dozen military war games going on. And so they one of their jobs was to make aircraft bogeys or targets for the military war games appear and disappear on different radar. So we had a lot of confusion at one point on 9-11. There were 11 suspected hijackings out there, and air traffic controllers had no idea what was real and what was make-believe because there were all these war games going on, and that was their job, P-TECH and MITRE. And remember P-TECH, they had that backdoor and that software, the Promise software. They could make things appear and disappear without anybody even knowing that they were in their computer screen. Right. That includes NORAD and the FAA uh, air traffic control radar screens. 
So we had a point at one point, one of the fighter jets that finally scrambled downtown New York at 924 was seeing what he believed was target was tagged as flight 11, which crashed supposedly at 846. At 924, he thought he saw them on his radar screen in, in his plane heading south of New York toward Washington, D.C., now, that's 45 minutes after it crashed. But there was a lot of confusion because we had these two companies that had access to all the radar screens. They could make planes appear and disappear. So when the flight termination system took over, they could just upload radar data. And I have tons of it now on an external hard drive that they could upload that into the FAA computer systems and make those airplanes look like they went to Cleveland or anywhere else. Wow. And that's how it was done, and that's the companies involved. And again, that rabbit hole takes you right back to a Middle Eastern country uh, that is not an Arab country. And um, they're also very infiltrated into our national security because they have access through that back door to just about everything, including all of our weaponry. Right. Well... So it's cryptic. pretty sobering, actually, so what cryptic. I found. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's just amazing and mind blowing. Actually, uh, listen, when I uh, when I made the discovery that I kept going back to those phone calls had to have been made on the ground. Flight ninety three, most of the calls they claimed were from cell phones. And right. Tom Burnett, interesting. Tom Burnett called his wife at nine twenty seven a.m. The flight wasn't officially hijacked until nine twenty eight. <laughs> Somehow, one minute. One minute prior to the hijacking, he was already calling his wife, telling her all the details of a hijacking. Wow. So there was a little problem. I mean, not only did the hijackers, the planners, the handlers, whatever you want to call them, the perps, I call them perpetrators sometimes, not only did they not know how we are trained and the code words we would use and how we would react in a hijacking, as we, I'm saying flight attendants and pilots, or airline right. crew members. But um, they also didn't realize that cell phones don't work at altitude. So that told me they were used to flying on maybe uh, like Air Force One type of planes where they, they actually have phone. <laughs> they can talk on cell phones or any kind of phones. Uh, you know, leaders, uh, prime ministers of countries, for example, that are going from A to B on their 747 or their 757, they're equipped with all kinds of communication abilities, including talking on any kind of phone. Yeah. So the, to them, they didn't even realize that cell phones don't work at altitude. So there were flaws in their their plan. So to me, it actually started to look like a B-movie written in Hollywood by someone who doesn't understand how an airplane, airline, or crew members all function together. Yeah. Well, you'd think if they were trying to pull off such an enormous uh, hoax here that they would have found somebody to write a better script for him. <laughs> I said that exact same thing to my husband. But they control the media, so they write the script. Speaking of scripts, let me just mention something else to you that's very interesting. If you want to look up something interesting, look up Sayeret Met Call. Mm -hmm. and I think it's spelled S-A-Y-E-R-E-T-M-A-T-K-A-L. Yep. And you look and see that there's two other interesting characters that were also trained assassins, Bibi Netanyahu. Yep. And Ehud Barak, and you'll remember Ehud Barak was in New York on September 10th, 2001, downtown New York. And the morning of 9-11, he was in the BBC studios. He's actually the man who coined the phrase war on terror. He's the right. one who first told us this was Osama bin Laden who did this. 
And he's the one who wrote the script for Jane Stanley, who made an announcement at 5 o'clock, 20 minutes before the Solomon Building, a.k.a. Building 7, right. collapsed. That it was had already collapsed 20 minutes before it did. And it's standing right behind her, and she's standing <laughs> in a building strategically placed with the Solomon Building right over her shoulder. <laughs> Now that's who wrote the script. She's just reading a she's just reading a teleprompter, much like the president does. Right. And so Wait, she's announcing to, the building has collapsed when you can see it right bef- right behind her. That's correct. Oh my gosh, I got to yeah. refresh on my nine eleven <laughs> yeah. stuff. stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's now, one of the most incri- like incriminating. I remember hearing that, and I I mean that alone should you know anyone who's uh-huh. even skeptical at all of the whole thing should. Uh, well, interesting. We have the, we have Sayret met call as a passenger nine B who was originally tagged as the hijacker on board. Mm-hmm. We have Ehud Barak as Sayret met call, ex prime minister who'd been flying around on airplanes with cell reception mm-hmm. in the BBC studios, telling them that the building seven's going to collapse before right. it did, and wrote the script and put it in a teleprompter right. twenty minutes before it did. How did he know that? And another, and and just just so you know, Rebecca, our, you know our audience is primarily a Christian audience, and we do have a lot of listeners that are more of the traditional support Israel type. <laughs> so I know I think you've been. Oh, try- this is a wake up call, I, I, I guess. Know, for him, I know because you I know, know. Unfortunately, um, it's really easy for us as as very programmed Americans. Well, we're very programmed. We're very brainwashed as a nation to sit and say that. Four professional airline pilots from Saudi Arabia, or two pilots and a engineer at a, I forget what they did, them, uh, engineer at an oil factory or something in Riyadh, that 19 Arabs that weren't on board would give us the ability to hate Muslims right. and to go kill more than probably 5 million people in the Middle East. Because another interesting thing that I found about these phone calls, and this is, again, something I would never have done in 30 years. I would never have described someone using this term. Um, He's of Middle Eastern descent, unless he came on wearing a robe from Saudi Arabia or Kuwait, one of those white outfits that they wear. Right. With the checkerboard thing on their head. Um, unless it was some something like that, I would never be able to. I can't tell if somebody's um, Hispanic, Persian, uh, Turkish. I mean, you just can't tell. I mean, I, when I would fly from Europe to the United States, I'd have over 60 different languages and probably 80 different cultures. I would never in my lifetime have said someone was of Middle Eastern descent unless they were wearing the customary clothing. It's just impossible right. to look and, at someone and, like that. And it's, so, it's such a formal sort of description of somebody. Yeah, it's not how we talk. Yeah. Again, it's like the airline hostess. That's not how we speak. And so what was happening for me is I was seeing all these, everyone saying the same thing. Jeremy Glick, the judo champion, six foot two, 225 pounds, black belt judo champ, 33 years old. Right. He, he claimed they were Iranians. <laughs> I'm like... How would you know that? Right. And just, you know, for our listeners, just so more information that they may not be familiar with, but on, I believe, either the day or the day after the towers were hit, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was asked about the event, and he said, quote, it's very good. And then he credited himself and he said, well, not very good, but it will generate immediate sympathy. 
So yeah, it's I mean, very good wow. for Israel. He said, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, interesting. You know, you're you're talking about people that they get caught up and they don't want to believe that um, some force in in Israel was a part of this and deal with that reality. But here's what happened when I did a one of the very first interviews when the book came out, and I laid this out there because you know I didn't go in thinking it was anybody other than the 19 Arab hijackers. I I was programmed just like everyone else was, and so was my character. I mean, I just I didn't. I have. A, I didn't think I was going to find Jews, Catholics, Protestants, or any you know Buddhists. I didn't. I mean, I just didn't have any preconceived notion. It's just coincidentally that I started finding all of these dual citizens with Israel, not anywhere else. I, if I would have found Iranians, I'd have told you that. But I didn't. I didn't find any um, Greeks or. <laughs> any French. I just found uh, dual citizens with Israel connected at the bottom of every single rabbit hole I went down. I went down every one of them. Right. But this lady called, contacted me through email and she said, my husband and I are born again Christians and we have a real hard time dealing with Israel being a part of this. But then we realized that the Jews of Israel are no more a part of the Mossad. Keep in mind, the Mossad's like their secret, their Israeli secret. Right. They're, they're uh, CIA. It's like CIA. Yeah. It's their yeah. CIA, right? So she says, the Jews in Israel, or the Jews of the Bible, the Jew, Jewish people, are no more a part of the Mossad than we as Americans are of the CIA or, heaven forbid, Blackwater or... Uh, the uh, black ops people who have spun off from our CIA and right, FBI. Right, right. And that's very true. And I think people need to deal with that because you need to know who's doing this. The same people that control our media. So they've got the message. That's how nobody ever, nobody in our media ever let out the fact that two, at least two women were involved in right. this as well, hijackers. And just to, just to kind of build on that too, um, you know, a lot of people are here, you know, have accepted that the world is run by some pretty shady figures, mm -hmm. that there are things happening in the shadows, that America is being controlled by something else, by Russia and China are, are not necessarily what they think they are. Um, but then the second you mention the, the governmental decisions of Israel, uh, it's almost like you they forget that the you know that the same dark forces controlling other governments in the world and mm -hmm. when i say dark forces i mean illuminati or whatever mm -hmm. the shadow government mm -hmm. um that they couldn't possibly be con controlling israel right you and, know? and and you yes. can, and you get labeled anti-semitic yeah. very so quickly. it's not necessarily it's not about anti-semitism it's not about it's about the, the truth Jew it's not about the jewish people as a people it's about you know the same shadowy people controlling the entire world and israel is not immune to that well it you know for me like i said i went into this and it was truly all about the truth and that's all i wanted to find was the truth and you know if i would have found catholics or iranians i would be telling you right now about them but that was my mission was to find the truth of what happened to the planes and the passengers and who was at the control who right. and and it, all you have to do now look back hindsight is always 2020 always it never fails it is always 2020 and who benefited like i said who what what terrorist group would have benefited from the exact offices that were investigating the comptroller 
of the United States Pentagon, Rabbi Dov Zakheim. What what group in the Middle East, what terrorist group would have benefited from that investigation? Not only that investigation, but in Building 7, did you know that the Enron Global Crossing and the, um, let's say, what was it called? Worldcom. Remember, mm-hmm. those were big, huge scandals. All of their investigation, all of their evidence was held in Building 7. It is all gone and it all disappeared. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and there was something else that I found that, I, I mean, I didn't get any of this information from the media, but there was something else going on that the senior Bush, George Bush Sr., had, in, as part of the destruction of the Soviet Union, created these uh, Brady bonds. They were created on with stolen physical gold and fake gold paper bonds, just out of thin air, $240 billion worth of stolen gold had to be funneled back into the heavily monitored gold market. And they were expiring on September 12, 2001. They were held in Cantor Fitzgerald, exactly the target office. And you'll remember that the two companies, Marsha McClellan and Cantor Fitzgerald, were actually the where the airplanes or whatever it was went into. So, Getting back to answering your question about what did hit those towers, um, I've, there's a great presentation, if you've ever heard Barbara Honiger give, uh, about the Pentagon and how uh, multiple sources inside the Pentagon uh, claim that there were multiple explosions going off, much like you hear people from the towers say that there were bombs going off in the, in the lobby in the basement levels before the planes hit. There were set explosives going off. Uh, prior to the aircraft hitting or whatever it was it hit. Same at the Pentagon. Nothing hit in Shanksville. I don't know what they shot down. They could have shot down at some one of their drones, but there's never been a serial number stamped aircraft part, and every single solitary piece of an airplane has a serial number stamped to it. So, right. I, I mean, that's just what happens. And when there's a plane crash, sometimes people try. There's actually a... Um, I hate to say this, but an Israeli Mossad operation that went down uh, when American Airlines crashed a plane in Colombia. They went down and pilfered all the parts that they could, and they were up in Seattle, Tacoma area, uh, trying to sell these parts, which is where Boeing is based, and selling these uh, parts. Well, all those parts are... are, um, Serial numbered. Serial numbered. And so they got busted. Actually, the guy that was busting them got murdered. Oh, yikes. Uh, Yeah, uh, he's... uh, I forgot his last name now, but... um, that ended that investigation, but yeah, there was a band of people. They'd gone in and in Colombia and uh, swooped in and pulled all of these parts off of this. And it was a seven uh, seven fifty seven because there is a theory that some of those parts were actually dropped over the Pentagon or into the Pentagon or released inside the Pentagon. Maybe there was just a box of parts in the building. Who knows? I don't know. But that's just a theory uh, that there's that serial number. But the actual four aircraft that were involved that day that we are led to believe crashed, never one part of the matching serial number has ever come forward. That's kind of interesting. Because yeah. when you study, you know, look at what they did with TWA 800. They brought that aircraft up out of the ocean and put it back together. Right. That's what the NTSB usually does. Black boxes don't disappear, but what we just saw with German wings. Mm-hmm. Now, this is interesting. If I have enough time, I'll tell you this. Sure. When Airbus came out and we start, first started flying Airbus here in the United States, something interesting happened. And you'll remember that an Airbus crashed in the air show in Paris, I believe it was. Um, 
and around the same time when they were kind of new aircraft coming out. Well, we had them. We were started to fly them. And I know the company that I worked for, which I never disclose, uh, just for my own safety, just so you know. Um, they, uh, our pilots were landing. Actually, I believe they were in, in D.C. a couple times, Washington, D.C. And the aircraft decided on its own it would take off. And like how the computer in 2001 Space Odyssey, <laughs> I'm taking off now, Jim. Um, so what happened was, of course, the FAA comes in and they investigate this because I know it happened more than once. Because I'm pretty sure it happened two or three times just on one airline. Um, and they investigated it. And you know what they did? They ended up finding out that what they claimed did this, created the aircraft, the Airbus, is just a one computer system, doesn't have redundancies like the Boeing. That the computer system was uh, tickled by a disc man, Walkman disc man, playing a disc by a passenger sitting in the front row of first class. And now, just so you know that how a CD is read is through a laser. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's how hypersensitive. And at that point, the FAA, that's the only thing they could claim did this to the Airbus. And that's when they created that you can't use your electronic devices until we're above 10,000 feet. Hmm. That's the only reason. A CD player. Uh huh. And that's that's how sensitive that Airbus could be. Uh, Just so you know, after 9-11, the uh, cockpit door, which was just kind of a maybe, you know, just a regular little door. You probably saw them. They were pretty just thin, like a bathroom door, Mm. pretty much, on a plane, laboratory door. Well, once the 9-11 happened, immediately they started replacing those with, check this out, a grenade-proof door. (laughs) Just imagine a grenade going off up there. I mean, the whole fuselage would fall apart. So, grenade, I thought that was a little overkill. (laughs) <laughs> but gun, you know, gun proof and grenade proof. It's like the whole cabin's not. I mean, the fuselage isn't gonna grenade proof. You can actually do a lot of damage just with a gun up there. So if you blow a window out or put a hole in the fuselage, right? So the I, I just thought that was really amazing that they made these things so like that. But but on the outside of the door is a an electronic keypad. And each airline can put in their code, you know, four four digits, six digits, whatever. And um so I knew that the captain, when he went out to go tinkle, he um, actually had a keypad to get back in. And that unlocks the door, and then you have to push the door in because it just unlocks it. Right. And they turn the handle and push in. And so I know how those doors work because I flew with them for a few years after 9-11. And it, I thought, uh-oh, his electronic keypad didn't work. And immediately I followed, came into following CERN and Anthony Patch and all of that mm-hmm. information on CERN because I'm pretty concerned about it. And uh, I thought, wow, remember when the Airbus and, and that reaction was to a disc man? Well, what's going on over there? Right. And then the Alps, you know, a lot of times they're made out of uh, like granite or crystal type mm-hmm. things. And so I'm thinking, wow, the, maybe the, I don't know what their makeup is of it. But, you know, they could be highly conductive to what's going on with CERN, the mag- magnetic stuff that's coming out right, of there. Right. And if you'll remember right before that, CERN was, you know, kind of bragging that they were going to be up by uh, by the 30th or 31st of March at full speed. Yeah. They were going to be up at, uh, you know, like 13... Yeah, it was up. To, yeah, it was up to. I mean, they said as high as seventeen. I've been tracking the whole CERN thing, mm-hmm, but um, mm-hmm. one of the interesting things about that flight also that I, you know, that I was uh, that I pointed out in one of my videos was um, that Yvonne Selke and her daughter mm-hmm. were killed in the crash, 
and they were contracted, or at least、uh, Yvonne was contracted、mm-hmm. with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency,、mm-hmm. um, and she was、uh, part of Booz Allen Hamilton. They had funded three hundred fifteen million dollars for、uh, some projects that they were doing with the NG.、Uh, I guess it's called the NGA. So very interesting that that you know she was on the flight. Yeah, and, very, I saw that, and you know, at the, just to bring it back to nine eleven, NGA、mm-hmm. on the day of nine eleven, their their particular drill at their office there at the end of the runway,、mm-hmm. I believe they're right off a of Dulles runway, or National maybe. Their particular drill was actually an aircraft hitting their building. Wow!、Mm. And Booz Allen Hamilton, that's Edward Snowden, went to work right, for them. That's right. Dov Rabbi Dov Zakheim、mm-hmm. went to work at Booz Allen wow. Hamilton. Wow! <laughs> all the dots Ra- connect. Uh huh. So you see, it all comes around full circle. And yes, I did see that, and that's one of the first things I look at. It's the same I did with MH370. Right, and also MH370 was probably taken to Diego Garcia. Yeah, and, and also the.、Uh, Um, I guess the one of the CIA like, leaders, or I, I can't remember if he was a、uh, uh, the head guy or not, but he was in charge of the NGA. Announced that he was stepping down just a week before the the German wings flight went down. So you know,、exactly. it's a little、yeah. little shady, but you know. Yeah, you know, one of the things I noticed that for just my own personal thing is, you know, I was living in that cognitive dissonance bubble. I didn't want to know the truth. I wanted to, you know. Label people. You're a hater. You're an anti-Semite. You're a whatever. I mean, I just I would I didn't look. I didn't want to deal with the truth. I was in there. I'm. I was there, and so was my main character. The book. When you wake up to the truth in nine eleven, what what you do wake up to is the fact that this Illuminati, this Luciferian cult, is in fact nationwide. It's in every single solitary government entity on this planet. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that CERN quite possibly is doing, I mean that、uh, symmetry dance, that、uh, mm-hmm. dance of destruction they did was a I, I, the Illuminati never does anything without letting you know. Yeah. And what I found is when you wake up to the nine eleven truth, then you start to open.、Uh, it's like a veil is lifted, and you start to see through. Their story, and the story is the same over and over again. For instance, on nine eleven, we had only two out of nearly two hundred and fifty people that all carried passports. Only two passports made out of paper, no titanium engine parts, no landing gear, nothing from an aircraft, no black boxes that don't disintegrate. Nothing but two paper passports, not from an American, not from a pilot, not from a flight attendant, but from the fake hijackers that weren't even、mm. on board.、Yeah. Only those. And then, if you look at that and remember that, also at Charlie Hebdo in Paris, we have two highly trained. You know, see the military, the、uh, media here was saying、oh, they're highly trained. You can tell by the way they carry their guns. As、so、you watch that little video snippet where they shot that guy that didn't bleed on the sidewalk. Uh, that、right. ricocheted their bullets off the the cement, not right, his head. Right, right,、yeah. um, and you then, what did they do? They left their ID. Now, who wouldn't do a terrorist attack like they pulled off and bring their ID with them? <laughs> yeah, and leave it in a. Now, this is really interesting because I kind of got into studying this too because, like I said, that veil has been lifted, and now I can see clearly what is going on around me, and that's what happens with people. That read the methodical illusion, and they contact me and they say, "Oh, I, I, I mean, I." It's just the same thing over and over. And just so you know, I'm 
I am a Christian, by the way, and um, Lucifer may be in charge, but he also isn't very clever. He can only do things over and over and over again. So you're yeah. going to see these things, that paper, passport, the ID, the same things over and over and over again so so that there's no question we'll leave our identification in a stolen car by the way the car with the cars that they stole they car carjacked two cars in paris they brought one of the cars in front of a bakery that is a Mossad meeting place in paris and they stole a car from charlie ebdo's editor's best friend and that's where they left their id and again, much like 9-11, it's Mossad connected to everything. I wow. didn't do it. I didn't write their script. I'm just telling you the story. <laughs> I'm just a researcher. I mean, I, I'm, you can't call me an anti-Semite. I didn't choose their religion. I didn't pick their careers. I didn't create the story. Right. I just picked it apart using common sense, knowledge, and just an open mind. And, you know, it's interesting. I haven't really been called an anti-Semite. And quite frankly, if people uh, do that, they have they have an issue. And well, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't think anybody could. Um, you know, it's just the whole Israel thing is so sensitive, and people, um, you know, they they group together just the Jewishness and the government of Israel. Um, whereas, you know, you can disagree with the government. And not well, also, if you want to pull out a King James and look at Revelation 2.9 and just ponder on that. 2.9 and 3.9. And 3.9. Who ever on the surface of this planet ever, who, who besides the Zionist government of Israel, the Zionists, the Ashkenazi, who has ever called themselves Jews and are not? And when it mentions the synagogue of Satan, you'll notice in Revelations it refers to churches and the child synagogue of satan you look at synagogue of satan and just put it all together if you do just a little surface research into the illuminati lucifer the satanic cults of the freemasons um uh, adam weishoff the illuminati uh creator mm -hmm. and all of those things and what they've done throughout history and you know when i i'm older than you guys but um when i was a kid john kennedy was uh shot mm -hmm. and i remember growing up and i was pretty young when that happened but when i grew up i remember hearing this phrase the military industrial complex killed him and i never knew what that meant until i did 9-11 research and you find uh people and and uh Corporations involved, like the Mitre Company. Mitre Company is also the shadow government. And you can do a quick search. Just go onto their um, websites, and they'll tell you all they do. They run everything from the IRS to our now our Obamacare healthcare, and everything in between. Classic. These are all companies like <laughs> Booz Allen Hamilton, same type of thing. Right. Halliburton, same type of deal. They reaped three to six billion dollars on making uniforms, making vaccines, making weapons, guns, tanks, planes, whatever. And they're all of those corporations were involved or had passengers or handlers on board all of the aircraft on 9-11. Wow. And you know, Boom. I didn't write the script. I just read what <laughs> happened. I no, just uncovered it. You know, it's like okay. No, this is really, really fascinating. I mean, a lot. Again, I said it before, but um, you know, I've never heard such a, a, a breakdown of the events of nine eleven from the perspective that you have. And so, 
Uh, yeah, you can go ahead and uh, send us a copy of your book, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can enjoy that. Um, so, first of all, <laughs> first of all, two hours into the conversation. First of all, no, 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 no. Okay, so you finally get I, a word in edgewise. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I just wanna, I just wanna ask you, like, um, I mean, you obviously feel strongly that uh, this book is is a powerful thing for people to help open people up would you suggest it to kind of people who haven't woken up yet or or oh, yeah. let's talk about your book for just a second yeah um well what what i'm the feedback i'm getting are people that are giving it you know the 9-11 whole thing has created a lot of disharmony in homes and families and uh even extended families and people got together at thanksgiving and got in huge arguments for the 14th year about, or maybe the 10th year. I think a lot of people started waking up uh, when Stephen Jones came forward with finding nanothermite in the dust. And then people started to think, wait a minute, was there something more to this? And when you started seeing scholars come out and people like uh, Dr. Judy Woods coming forward uh, with uh, <clears throat> other possibilities of uh, techniques that might have been used on those towers, because they were huge. And something really big had to have happened to make sure they came down the way that they did. And so when people started, the veil started to lift for a lot of different uh, scholars and people were looking at it, wait a minute, that's denying physics. Uh, mm -hmm. They started to, to kind of wake up to something else is happening here. And um, what, what happened is that people, the truthers, we'll call them, that started to wake up to this and started following people that were exposing things like, you know, Stephen Jones and the architects for engineers, architects and engineers for 9-11 truth and that, that type of thing. Um, they uh, go to their families and their sisters and brothers are like, yeah, and that, you know, tinfoil hat. And you've got your people that are well positioned in the media, like Bill O'Reilly and all those people on CNN, uh, Glenn Beck, who was on CNN for a while. And if you question the 9-11 truth, you were referred to as a pinhead or a tinfoil hat or that they actually came up with the name truther. Mm hmm. Uh, in a demeaning way to you. And there's a lot of people that, like my protagonist that don't want to be labeled as a truther or a nut job. So right. they don't want to look. And But they may know something's going on. Well, what I'm getting from people is I gave, I read your book, I gave your book to my sister, my mother, blah, blah, blah. And after they read the book, they're wide awake now. And they can't thank me enough. And that is that was my target audience. That's why I wrote the book for straight from my heart. I, I, listen, this was so personal to me because I could have been one of those passengers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, so, e uh, so easily, because I was commuting coast to coast. So, I mean, I, I so easily could have been there. I missed it by, you know, I feel like the hair on my chinny-chin-chin, you know. Um, it was... Uh, real close to home, and it changed my world. It changed how I went to work. It changed how I was treated uh, when I tried to go to work. My work was inside an airplane. I had all these uh, Walmart workers with blue gloves going through all my stuff, squeezing out my toothpaste every time I went to work. It was just horrible. And so, um, you know, I think that when I put this together, I wanted the people to really connect with Vera Hansen, the main character. Uh, she's a senior flight attendant, and she she's afraid to look, and most of us were, and I was. And so I, I bring them through step by step 
uh, introduce them to the real dump of 9-11 truth comes around, starts in about maybe 170 and from a guy named Max Hager, and he's the truther's truther. He's uh, he, de- he lets them know about everything that went on that day that we weren't told. I wasn't told any of this in the media. Mm-hmm, I never right. knew there was possibly a woman or two involved. And right. so you can actually hear a woman, and I'm, I've got a professional voice analyzers that are analyzing some tapes for me, but there was a flight attendant on Flight 93 named Cece Lyles. And Cece Lyles, uh, there, if you just Google search, you can find a Wikipedia post on Cece Lyles Flight 93. It should get you to the Wikipedia on her. And down on the lower right-hand side, you'll see a few players, like these little mp3 type players and you click on one of them is a recording she left at home cc lyles was a police officer for six years if somebody was threatening her she'd fight back her husband was a police officer and he worked nights so she left a message at 9 47 a.m about 15 minutes before impact in shanksville where you will hear a quiet just like my voice right now in a room by myself it's all nice and quiet here where she says hi you know, baby i'm baby you have to listen to me carefully I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I'm on the plane. I'm calling from the plane. I want to tell you I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. And I'm so sorry, babe. Um, I don't know what to say. There are three guys. They've hijacked the plane. I'm trying to be calm. We're turned around. And I've heard that there's planes that's been, been flown into the World Trade Center. I hope to be able to see your face again, baby. I love you. Bye. Her voice starts to break at the end as you start to cry. You know how you can't keep talking Mm -hmm. because you're going to start crying. She hands the phone to someone. You can clearly hear this on the Wikipedia tape, and I highly suggest you download it Mm -hmm. because as I continue doing this, they will remove this. And so you can hear her the phone she's talking on, whether it's her cell phone or or a receiver. It almost sounds like an old receiver. Her hand is over that the uh, speaker part. You know, it's like if I go like that on my Mm -hmm. microphone, you probably hear that. And then you hear a woman's voice, and it appears to say, "You did great." You did great. Wow. Now, in a situation like this, she's in control of a hijacked situation as a crew member. She's making a phone call. There's no passenger that's going to be there telling her she did great. Right. Right. And that's a woman involved in this that you don't know about. And it's right there on Wikipedia for you to hear. The Illuminati love to do this. They love (laughs) to put it in your face. And what happened for me when the veil lifted, I saw it all in my face. Right. right. And okay, just to let you know this, <clears throat> about a week ago, I was contacted on Skype by someone who <clears throat> claimed to know someone that was a, a Skype contact that was somebody else that uh, didn't, it didn't quite feel right to me. I have an incredible level of discernment too. And uh, so I asked this person that they referenced, I said, who is this person that's asking uh, to? you know, meet up with me or contact me or personal questions to me. It's an Illuminati hitman. Wow. They don't want this information out. How how did you, how did you reckon that? Uh, He told the the, uh, person that he referenced owns a forum 
And they apparently were having a discussion about my book on a forum online. And this Illuminati hitman, <clears throat> excuse me, this Illuminati hitman apparently was monitoring this gentleman's forum. And so when he came to me, he was basically on, on Skype saying, uh, you know, the introduction, like, I don't want to add you to my contacts. Are you the 9-11 Rebecca Roth? Mm. And I thought, well, that's really a weird thing to say. And then uh, mentioned this other person's name who I knew because it was a contact of mine on Skype. And this guy does run a forum online and does videos and stuff. And so I thought, what's the connection? Well, he started to kind of ask me some, you know, serious personal type questions like, where I was type of things, and I really, I want to, I have to talk with you, blah, blah, blah. So I asked my other friend, who is this person? Because I'm, I'm not going to continue talking to someone I don't know who it is. And he's the one who told me he's an Illuminati hitman. <laughs> Sent me a picture of the guy. And so <clears throat> I know now that I've done enough, uh, I've got enough YouTubes out there and and all of that. People always, are, I have so many people praying over me for my safety, and I feel it. And I feel very blessed by that. And just so you know, I wrote this book two years ago, and it sat on a shelf. And it sat on a shelf for two reasons. One, the Illuminati hitman. <laughs> and two, the truth movement itself. The truth movement itself actually was probably the most detrimental. And I've had people come to me and very nastily say, what took you so long? Why didn't you come out? Why didn't you stop these wars before? And I mean, I've had just really weird behavior from 9-11, quote unquote, truthers. Mm. Uh, you know, they're going to vet me. And if they can vet me, I'll be okay in their movement. I don't need their movement. Mm. I am the truth and I'll stand in it because I have one person one person that I stand with in the truth. And, you know, one of the things that Jesus said when he was here was very important. I think a lot of people need to understand this. The Illuminati is going to bring you down in fear and doubt. And you'll see a lot of this online, the FEMA camps, and mm -hmm. they're going to come after us, the Jade Helm, all this fear, 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 fear. Get out of that vibration. Our system operates on frequencies. And if you're down there in fear and doubt, you're so easily controlled. And there is a, a frequency, and Jesus was all about that. It's a four-letter word called love. The second word that he often mentioned was joy, because he brought joy to people who were around him. That's the feeling they had. The vibration of joy and love overpowers every evil. And the way we want to fight this evil force, this Luciferian Illuminati dark side that's in control, is to unite in joy and love. It's hard to do because you feel overwhelmed, but you're not. We are the majority. We need to stand together and fight this. Amen, sister. Coming from our perspective, um, you know, we, as, as a show that looks at Bible prophecy, you know, it's our opinion that a lot of these sorts of events were prophesied, not specifically the event itself, but the sort of, uh, I guess, the Luciferian overlords or just this mm -hmm. dark, sinister force is a spiritual battle, not so much mm -hmm. of a, um, you know, a physical one. Uh, Ephesians 6.12 talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, there's several passages that talk about, you know, a, a one-world type government, a one-world mm -hmm. religious system that will uh, basically overtake the world in the end times. And, and that stuff does seem to provoke fear. We've been accused of fear mongering and stuff like that. 
But ultimately, it seems like, and there's a lot of passages that talk about, you know, we, we are not given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of uh, truth, love, and a sound mind. So mm-hmm. that's what we operate in, or we try to operate in. Sometimes even that takes a, you know, a mm-hmm. beating. You know, you guys aren't, don't take stuff seriously enough. You know, we've gotten that a little bit recently. But but just, just to wrap it up, you said you mm-hmm. were working on a sequel. What direction are you taking the story in terms of, you know, is there more that this uh, the main character uncovers, or, or what is there more on nine eleven, or where are you taking it? What I have right now, and I'm not the only one that has this information because I'm <clears throat> I'm nobody's dummy. I've been around, you know. With age comes wisdom, <laughs> so I know how this these people work. Uh, that this information is not just in my hands, but we have uncovered through the Freedom of Information Act terabyte of data that I have proof that will rock the entire world. And it is all around 9-11. And there's no way they can get out of this. It's in their own documentation. And it's, um, it's such proof that they just can't, they can't deny it. Mm. It's, it's, uh, <clears throat> oh, let me just put it this way. It's kind of computerized proof. Digital proof. Digital proof. And you know how computers, when you do something, they put a stamp on it? Right. It tells you when they created it. So, so the uh, the whole mark of the beast system is working against them. <laughs> the whole technocracy. Uh, exactly. Well, they got busted, and um, and so there's several things that are are going to come out, and I'm going to work it into a sequel. Um, I'm hoping to have it out by the end of summer, uh, hopefully before September 1st, and on the market and available because this is information that really I'm truly. I couldn't even believe it when I saw it because we we were looking (laughs) for uh, a needle in a haystack and it was right there on the top of the stack. Right. (laughs) It was so obvious. It was like, and, and okay. So let me just touch on something. When I uh, exchanged some information with a researcher that had this terabyte of information, he didn't have a lot of money. And I said, listen, I want that, all of that information because what's going to cost you a ter- uh, a hard drive, an external hard drive that'll hold a terabyte of stuff. I said, I'll send one right to you. So I sent him from Amazon. I just ordered it, sent it to his home. I, I said, when you get it uploaded, just let me know what the postage is and I'll send it to you. This happened, um, I got actually got my external hard drive on Christmas Eve. And he uh, two days before that, he called me on Skype, and here's your uh, screenshot of your postage. And it was $9.11. <laughs> and when I saw that, I knew that a force so much bigger wow. than me was behind all of this. It's like when I discovered a story that you'll find in there that's about 9B's wife in an FBI document that is in the novel. That blew me away, and I was in final edit of the book, and I, I'm like, I have to write this in. I had, I had to rebuild the chapter to put that in. It's such an important thing, just like what you just will hear on the tape with Cece Lyles. The woman says, you did great, and I'm thinking, nobody's telling me as a flight attendant I did great making a phone call. But here's another interesting thing. According to... The NTSB and the FAA, that aircraft that she was sitting on, was in a descent between six and 10,000 feet per minute. Let me tell you what would be going on. The aircraft would itself be making a shuddering, ruddering, shaking sound that would sound like it's falling apart, because it almost is. Right. And you would hear passengers screaming and a lot of commotion. You hear nothing, just like my voice right now. 
You hear nothing in the background. You don't hear jets. You don't hear nothing (laughs) that you would be hearing. Uh, It's just like listening to the official story where these three guys are running up with full coffee pots of hot water and hot coffee in this narrow little aisle with the aircraft coming down uh, at a 40-degree angle and then upside down. I'm sorry, but you're not going to do that. Even a well-trained flight attendant is not going to be able to stand in the aisle with the aircraft coming down at a rapid descent in a 40-degree angle. And so right. They certainly can't do it upside down. So, I mean, when you put all the details together, it's such a nonsensical story. No wonder they made a Hollywood movie out of it. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder nobody went to it. Uh, went right to disc, I think. Or didn't, didn't do very well in the theaters, but... Yeah. One of the things that I did include, just so you guys know, and I have a video on my YouTube channel, which is Rebecca Roth, and you can just find it to Rebecca Roth on YouTube. Um, there's a, a video there. It's called, Could This Be the Next False Flag? And I talk about this in the book, and they actually find this document, and I actually saw it online. It was from an Israeli newspaper a couple years ago online. I believe it was Ynet news, but I'm not positive, but I luckily read it out loud to my husband, and it, it was a plan that the Israeli intelligence uh, Mossad had uncovered by Al-Qaeda, and we know who Al-Qaeda is now, and that they were going to launch a five or six major city attack on the United States using biological, chemical, and nuclear warheads on the anniversary of Osama bin Laden's death, May 2nd, for wow. nine days until May 11th. Wow. And that 9-11 just jumped out the page at me. I was like, what? Well, we know that Al-Qaeda was created by CIA and the Mossad. Mm -hmm. And we've got Hillary Clinton sitting there in Congress telling us that we created, uh, with Brzezinski, with Tim Osman, as a, uh, a.k.a. Osama bin Laden. So you can go onto my YouTube channel. You guys can have it. You can upload it. You can share it. You can do anything you want with it. I think it's called, Could This Be the Next False Flag? And that actually was found online pretty much. I had to create for the novel the cities because I'm just guessing uh, which ones they will use. They didn't mention which uh, cities, but it would will affect uh, over a nine-day period if they pull this off and blame Iran to stop the peace movement there. Mm-hmm. Um, or Syria and Iran or North Korea or Russia or whoever they want to blame, just like they did on 9-11. They blamed Middle Eastern dissent. Um, so that kind of covered everybody that we just went over and bombed over the last decade. So that's uh, it's important that people know that because I think you should be prepared first spiritually. Uh, second, emotionally, and third, physically with your yeah. food and your water. And I really highly recommend that people do that. Amen. Amen, sister. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca Roth, for coming on the show. Before we completely wrap up here, why don't you let us know where we can find your stuff, oh, all sure. your things? Well, here's what you can do. If you like autographed books, and um, just so you know, so your listeners know, after, let's see, today's the 13th. I'm going to guess by the 20th or somewhere between the 15th and the tw- or the maybe 17th and 20th, I'll have a hard uh, cover edition. Uh, it'll be the second edition. The uh, Kindle is currently in second edition. Those will be available on Amazon. Uh, also, they're available autographed on my webpage. It's just methodicalillusion.com. And it'll take you to a uh, secure online store run by Square. And if you don't have a Square account, you're going to check out as a guest. And you can buy that for $20 U.S., $30 U.S. Uh, money internationally. 
and I'll autograph it, sign it any way you want. There's a message box if you want a special name or somebody else's. There's also breakdowns for discounts. If you want to buy more than 12, you can just contact the publisher and get an even bigger discount. Uh, Amazon, all bookstores will order it for you. It takes about a week. If you go to Barnes & Noble, you'll prepay for it. It's $16.95 for the softback. I think it's the uh, $26 or something will be the hardback next week when it comes out. The Kindle's $9.11 in the United States. It's an instant read, and I, I recommend that. But you can also start reading the first three chapters on my website, uh, www.methodicalillusion.com. So there you go. I think that Boom. takes care of it. <laughs> there you go, everybody. Make sure to check that out. Rebecca Roth, one more time. Thanks for coming on the show, yo. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. And uh, just text me an address or email me an address. I'll mail you guys a book. Sounds good. Awesome. So there you have it, folks. Very interesting conversation with Rebecca Roth. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope, uh, you know, you got to, I don't know, get another perspective on things. Um, uh, this was a thing I hadn't heard before. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with her, but anyhow. Check that out. Yeah. Check out the and, book. And I, and I hope that we, and we did cover a lot of the same stuff that she's been talking about and, you know, she's been doing the rounds with interviews. Um, but I think we did touch on certain things that, you know, for example, coast to coast or, you know, John B. Wells and stuff, or even Hagman and Hagman, um, yeah. didn't touch on, which, you know, yeah. Is a, well, it, and it was cool to learn that she was a Christian too. We didn't even know that she was Christian when she came on. Right. So there you go. It was a little, little new agey thing in there but it's okay you know i mean at least uh it's all all about jesus baby all right so if you've made it this far in congratulations it's now (laughs) we always congratulate people that make it (laughs) i know well this is a long one it's true all right so there you go if you want to listen to more canary cry radio you can go to canarycryradio.com or find us on itunes i'm sure you know how to do that because you're listening to this now but on canarycryradio.com you can also do fun things like go to our forum talk to other people uh look at i don't know art and stuff also we if you want to support canary cry radio financially we have a support button there and you can go there and you can make uh uh you can make a monthly subscription type gift thingy and that's fun you don't have to think about it it's automatically uh boom every month Easy, fun, <laughs> fun, it's fun. Um, or if commitment's not your thing, you can go ahead and make a one-time gift in any amount there. And we really appreciate everybody who's been um, helping us out. You're really keeping the lights on over here. Uh, so we are sincerely, sincerely thankful for that. Right, Gons? Absolutely. And you know, we should do a better job of thanking them individually. We do. We try to, we try to do that. Um, you mean like on the air? Uh, not necessarily. But. Here, let me pull it up. Let me see if I can look at a couple. Do, 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 do. All right. I don't know how many, like, I don't see. I don't know if I can say names. Should we say names? Uh, Let's call this guy, hypothetically, we'll call him Glenn. <laughs> Thank you, Glenn, for your donation. What else do we have here? Here's one. Let's hypothetically call this man Brian. Thank you, Brian, for your generous gift. They're gifts, not donations. 
gifts. Anyways, there's a couple guys. Um, thank you guys. There's hypothetical Nicholas. Hypothetical Nicholas. Hypothetical William. Yep. Let's see. Hypothetical Hypoth- Tyler. Yes. Hypothetical Tyler. Thank you. Hypothetical um, Sarah. Okay. That's enough. We got to skip something <laughs> next time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, everybody. We love you. Oh, on the record? Yeah. I don't think the earth is flat. Do you? Do you think the earth is flat? Oh, yeah. We should go on the record because that was really funny. I don't, I don't, a, I don't think it's There's the most outrage of any episode. <laughs> it's like we do episode on episode and the outrage recently has just been getting <laughs> bigger and bigger. Um, no, I, I personally am not convinced that the earth is flat, everybody. So don't worry. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't think the earth I'm is flat I'm not in either. that school of thought. And uh, we we got a, a lot of comments and things um, about how we're imbeciles <laughs> for even entertaining uh, that interview. We're ridiculous. The, you know, the Earth is not flat, guys. Right. You know, that's well, what that's- we get. We get. No, it's it's concave. Is what it is. <laughs> no, it's funny because we do an episode on obama teleporting to mars and right. bigfoot and reptilian species and <laughs> like the craziest things and then the flat earth just like so much vitriol so yeah no 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 we get it everybody the earth is more than likely not flat more than likely <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and if you don't know what we're talking about, you can go ahead and listen to our last episode about the flat earth. One last thing about that. And we'll, we'll never speak of it again, but it's a, good time. It's a really, the, the, uh, you know, just in my mind, my, uh, sociological background of studying sociology and people's, you know, sort of reaction to things. It's the most fascinating thing because there's different concentric groups with different views within like the world of flat earth. And so mm-hmm. they're, you know, like like we we got one perspective from one guy you know and so all of like the oh he's a shill oh you know he puts false information in with real information of flat earth the earth is actually concave you know you 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 didn't present the the whole theory properly and people are very passionate about this topic it was very <laughs> interesting to see all your responses even all the negative ones i i loved it yeah. i personally thought it was a testament to this idea that the whole flat earth thing could be you know the grandest conspiracy you know really is kind of like the last and biggest conspiracy you know because if that's true then it's like oh the heck do we know about anything you know (laughs) who can we trust (laughs) all right okay Okay. so there you go everybody you take it easy (laughs) keep it fresh keep it crispy drink some coffee drink some coffee eat some some fruit yeah and then come back and see us again not gmo fruit Uh, though on the next episode of Canary Cry Radio. But until you do, think outside the cage. The flat cage dome. Okay. (laughs) 